everybody. Welcome to the Top Shelf Comic Book Club, episode number two. Joe the Barbarian is our wow. book. <gasps> My name is Steve Say, and this evening I am joined by comic book historian, gentle soul, and baker of the best damn New York cheesecake I've ever eaten, Mr. Bob Ryer. <sighs> left (laughs) (laughs) and in this corner we have hair queen sirens of scream podcast co-host and appreciator of lenore the cutest little dead girl (gasps) melissa megan (gasps) it's all true it's all very true (laughs) and last but certainly never least is biscuit extraordinaire whovian and the future mrs say Bronwyn Kelly, come Woo! on down! <laughs> and there you have it, folks. Is this the Bob Barker yeah, version? I hope right good. Music. All right, yeah, all right. Yeah, not that Drew Carey crap. <laughs> what is up, everybody? It's been a little while since we've had the uh, Top Shelf Comic Book Club, but we are back. We are back, and we've got Joe the Barbarian for you. Joe the Barbarian is written by Grant Morrison, has art by Sean Gordon Murphy, Came out in 2010 from Vertigo Comics. Now I've already introduced my co-host, but let's do uh, let's do a little bit of how do you do get to know you since uh, it's been a little while. And I'm not going to try to talk myself up like I did in the first episode because (laughs) oh god, no, I'm hoping you were actually. I I thought that was pretty entertaining. I'm not going to lie. Like (laughs) like watching a train wreck at a certain point, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) should we be taking turns coming up with a big intro for Steve each time? Oh, can we please? Sure. Oh boy. Mm. Sure, we could do that oh. next time. No oh, I can't wait. <laughs> oh, I'm going to spend the next month writing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got an extra month past that. This is going to be spectacular. Yay. <laughs> so, uh, left style. <laughs> so, in between our last recording, uh, a couple things went on. We had couple, a couple of hangouts, and we got uh, some big news going on uh if you recall the last time that we recorded bronwood and i were only boyfriend and girlfriend and uh you know i decided that 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 just wasn't gonna fly anymore i I didn't like that i didn't like the sound of that it just didn't roll off the tongue anymore and uh i decided to ask this lovely woman to be my wife (gasps) and what did you say I said yes, of course. She said, Yay! Yes. Now show I... us, show us. <laughs> yes. For those Yay. of you in Radio Land, she's showing us the ring through the yes, camera. Yes, she is. <laughs> it is an absolute... Look at that gorgeous vintage star sapphire from the 50s it's beautiful very much me um and it came in my very own pokeball <laughs> what? was yeah, that was it... that pokeball like a cake or something i couldn't tell <laughs> No, no, no. It it no. wasn't. It was actually like a '90s, like straight out of the Toyland Pokeball, like an actual like from when there was all the card games and the toys were the biggest, right in the '90s, kind of. And uh, yeah, Steve found one when he was hanging out with Serena's friend, and uh, he's like, "Oh, can I please have that? Because that's kind of perfect." And she gave it to him, and he fixed it all up because it was looking a little bit. Uh, a little bit rough, so he. Like shit. <laughs> yeah, but you handcrafted that that puppy into oh, something yeah. Here, special. I'll tell that version. Over. Here, I'll tell a little bit, and then you can pick it up where I leave off. So <laughs> I'm a little disappointed it wasn't a cake. Nah. 
I don't care. Do it again and bake a pokey cake, please. Okay. No, a big cake with with a Pokemon stripper in it. I guess right. And she's already working on the Tardis cake. So. A Tardis cake. Crystal, yeah, you're gonna have to get uh, you're gonna have to get a passport for that one, Bob, I because so. she's yeah. she's already working on it. Like it's it's gonna be a big deal. She makes <laughs> these little silver dollar pancakes with bacon jam. It's yeah. a thing. Oh, you, but come on, it's a thing. Silver dollar pancakes, awesome yep. already. Bacon jam. Yep. Yeah, that's bacon my jam. jam. So, uh, so Serena, my friend, gives me this Pokeball, right? And it's red and white and traditional Pokeball, but it looks like garbage. It's all scratched up. It's missing paint in the front and the whole bit. And so I don't paint that often. And I was told, I bring it to the hardware store and I'm like, yo, I want to paint this thing. What can I do to make sure that the paint stays on and it shows up and it doesn't smear and whatever? The guy tells me to take very fine sandpaper and to sand the plastic object that I've brought into the store. This was which store, by the way? Let's... This was Ace Hardware. Ace Hardware. In Rocky Point, New York, <laughs> Long Island. <laughs> May I make a suggestion for next time? Sure. Next time, Bob. Go- next time, perhaps, <laughs> maybe an art store. Maybe like Michael's Crafts. As opposed to Ace Hardware. Here's the thing. I went to Michael's Crafts, which is in the same damn shopping center. They told me to go to Ace Hardware. Boom. So I sat at my 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 TV, my my computer. I'm watching, I don't know, something, Futurama. And I'm sanding. (laughs) And I'm sanding just a little bit, very lightly. And I'm like, this feels wrong. Something about this just doesn't Plastic and sandpaper. Yeah. And I lift the sandpaper and like... So much of the Pokeball is in the sandpaper. <laughs> Thing is totally scratched up in every which way. And so I had to go back. And man, did I ma- I made them not only pay for the stuff that I bought, but I brought a whole bunch of stuff home to fix that damn thing. I had them with a table set up in the back working on it, spraying it. It turned out to be way better than I initially had planned. So it all worked out in the end. But oh my God, for like... A little less than 24 hours, I was bugging out because there was only one ball. Yeah, where are you going to find another 90s Pokeball? I have, you can see over there on the right, mm-hmm. I have a smaller version, but the, the box wouldn't have fit in there. And I actually ordered that from Japan. <gasps> and yeah, so that was a whole thing. But anyway, so I bring the rink to Bronwyn and Bronwyn, what happened? Oh, it was so cute. So he's telling this whole story about how, because with my concussion, I have been able to go out and do uh, all the things that we've been wanting to do and we were, took part in Gishwiz together which is the greatest international scavenger hunt the world has ever seen <laughs> uh, which you know supports random acts which is a huge charity and that Gishwiz is actually the number one supporter of the, the charity and um, I, I had been part of this scavenger hunt I'd signed up months before and then got this concussion and wasn't able to do as much as I wanted to do and you know, Steve was feeling really so bad for me that I wasn't able to participate in all these things that I wanted to do. And he'd wanted to make me feel included and all these things. And, you know, we'd started playing Pokemon Go together, uh, you know, and something, another one of those things that we can kind of do long distance and talk about and, and, uh, you know, can connect us over, over the distance. And uh, I, I live over a Pokestop, which is handy. So I can actually still play, even though (laughs) I can't, I can't go out as much as, or I couldn't go out as much with when the concussion was at its worst. And, um, so, but he'd wanted to involve me in their, all of their big, long pokey hunts and going out and seeing all of these things and these long walks and all these interesting Pokemon and everything like that. So he's telling me all the story as he's got me sitting in the, the armchair in our, in our apartment here in London, where my dad always 
would sit when he would come and visit before he passed away. And so it's a kind of a special place in, in my apartment and it's, it's got special meaning for us as well. And, um, <laughs> yes. so I'm sitting in this, in this chair and he's telling the story and he pulls out this, this Pokeball. And I am so excited when I see this, cause I love Pokemon and <laughs> I'm sure that I'm getting a Pokemon. I'm like, he's, yeah. he's me my very own Pokemon and I'm so excited. <laughs> And he kind of gets up on one knee as he's opening the ball, and I'm like, "Yay, Pokemon!" <laughs> he opens it up, and there's a ring box inside the Pokeball, and then like, "Oh yeah, full on ugly crying, right?" <laughs> <laughs> and he says, "Cause I don't want to call you my girlfriend anymore," which probably wise that he didn't lead with that before opening the box, so I could see Good the ring. Thing. But yes. <laughs> I'm smooth. <laughs> smooth like that. He's, and he asked me to marry him. He said, will you be my wife? And I was like, oh, yes, 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 yes. Sob, 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 you know? <laughs> I don't think story. I stopped crying for like a year. <laughs> Maybe an hour, but still. <laughs> I was sure that she knew. It was so difficult to keep it from her. Because we tell each other everything, like the moment it happens. Mm-hmm. Like like live tweet, you know, or, or live, live G-chat <laughs> messaging what's going on in our lives. And... Bronwyn and I are both very bad, not bad at, at keeping secrets for other people, but just keeping things from each other. And especially like big monumental things. Like when she showed up for my 35th birthday and I go over to my mom's expecting to have dinner with the family and she just walks like into the room. Hi, honey. I thought that I was having a flashback. <laughs> like I was losing my damn mind that she was there. I was so happy, but so stunned that I couldn't talk for like three minutes. She thought, thought that she I broke it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so we, I say, uh, because of the concussion, she picks me up with her, our friend Nick, and you know we're driving in the car. They're there. I'm in the back seat, being quiet, pretending to sleep. Uh, we we're gonna go out to dinner. So then I gotta wait through dinner, and I gotta wait till we're alone. And I'm just like, within the first twenty minutes of being in the apartment, I'm like, dinner. I'll take you out for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that story that I said I had to tell you that involved a lot of flailing? You need to sit down so I can tell you the story. And then that's when we went into the whole thing. Nice. And uh, yeah, and then uh, just today, this will actually be the first time uh, that I announced this officially. But uh, I had my big, well, I guess it, it was big for us. We, I had a meeting with uh, Social Security and Disability today and found out that I can actually move to Canada. <gasps> That they're not going to stand in my way and they're not going to deny me uh, my benefits or my money. And that was really kind of what we were waiting to hear, like the official word that that wasn't going to go on. And now it's like officially game time. And we're going to start putting the paperwork together, getting all of our ducks in a row, uh, probably later in the year looking for a new place to start to shop around. And uh, yeah, we're doing it. It's going to happen. And it's... uh, God, it's mind blowing. It's really mind blowing. Special, yeah. Really like we met, we met at Comic Con several years ago, and we talked for couldn't have been more than three minutes. <laughs> and now we're we're poised to be married. It's insane. You know, stuff just just happens at the strangest of times, and uh, and it's all good. That's all about comics. Yes, it all goes back to comics. Yeah. It all goes back to to talking comics, and you know, and the the good people that put me put me in line to be there that night and to and to cross Bronwyn's path you know whether it be Stephanie or uh Adam Kistler or Bobby Alan or um oh sorry oh my god his brother Adam <laughs> yeah I'm so grateful I'm so grateful 
What did I call him? Adam. We're going to go with Alan. Adam? Alan Sizzler Kissler. My apologies, dude. You're going to hear about I'm that. I'm a little one. amped up tonight. I'm really stoked that everything went so well today. So, uh, anyway, Melissa. See, my, my meetings with the government, they just tell me to leave the country. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't get such nice news. Well, they, see, now you have a place to come. And yes. there'll be Tardis cake and, <laughs> and bacon jam and homemade biscuits because I learned. I, and it was Crystal's Yo. recipe. Yo, the biscuits are so good. Wow. There's, I only had one and I was I was in heaven. So, uh, so Melissa, you're kind of quiet over there. I, I, am, I send my bittersweet congratulations to you. What? Bittersweet? <laughs> yeah. What's this? Well, not, I mean, not about Bronwyn. I'm just saying about going to Canada. Yeah, that'd be pretty awkward. You know, I'm not happy about <laughs> going to Canada. But I'm it's glad that it's, I'm glad that it's working out for you. <laughs> oh, we have to investigate this. No, I am. That just sounded so patronizing. Yeah. Like you just patted both Thanks. of our heads. Like, I'm, I'm real happy for you too. This is great. No, she's, Melissa's very happy I can see for your you. face. You look so it's angry. The, it's the. It's the she wants you as a New Yorker. Is that I what know. it is here? Yeah, no, I mean, we'll any be more New Yorkers. Canada when Trump takes over. <laughs> oh, don't remind me. Ugh, let's not even go there. Ugh. Um, but I, speaking of big events and stuff, I know no, you. No, you guys are just talking so much, and then you totally just like threw the spotlight on me. So, mother. <laughs> well, I was. I was going to say you about my life changes. I was going to to you, and then you got weird on us. <laughs> But uh, you and Bob actually had the opportunity ah. to hang out in between uh, this podcast and the last. What did you two get up to? No good. That's <laughs> quite quite a lot of good. At, yeah. at Melissa's insistence, I must say, because I was, oh, I don't know, I'm not so sure. Star Trek's 50th anniversary was this year, and they had it at the Javits Center, the Star Trek Mission New York and Melissa, I, I don't think I've said this. I may have said it to you privately, but publicly. Thank you so much for making sure I came to the show because I had such a great time in your company and Carolyn's and seeing all those panels and whatever, and I wouldn't have done it without you. So thanks so much. Oh, Bob. <laughs> oh, Bob. <laughs> yes, you know, of course you've said it to me. You, like, I've, I've never do anything with Bob have any small amount of good time, even something as small as a dinner without getting a follow-up email to say thank you for, <laughs> for the wonderful time. That's true. Such a, such an old-fashioned gentleman, that Bob. Uh -huh. So polite. <laughs> Lovely. Uh -huh. Always a pleasure. Yeah. No, it was a great time. I don't get to go. I can't go to New York Comic Con this year again. I'm kind of bummed Neat. about that again. But Oh, it's, it's a Disney but... trip, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Whatever. Disney. The <laughs> but but it's you know um so this was the closest thing to a con that i get this year so i i talked uh carolyn into spending the night down there with me and we shared a hotel and had a slumber party away from the kids for the night and what was your slumber party like uh that's a secret bob oh come on Ooh, it sounds uh pillow fight <laughs> uh no we actually we partied really hard we uh we sent the guys we we literally put bob and carolyn's husband on the train yes sent them back to long island <laughs> well, we walked them to the train station bye-bye and then we uh we got tea <laughs> <laughs> right. i'm not 
not joking. We got tea and we went back to our hotel rooms and laid in bed reading comics and drinking tea. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Not even the Long Island iced variety. Yeah. No. You just raging it. See, it was yeah. It was Hell a slumber party. <laughs> and they were never That's the amazing. Again. But I did meet Riker, which is like a lifelong goal of mine. Yes. <laughs> which is sad <laughs> but, yeah. And did he look lecherously at you? He uh not lecherously enough. <laughs> he, he's still pretty handsome though. Yeah. He's you know, he's got his beard's gotten a little whiter over time, but that actually works for a lot of people though. Yeah. He's very very handsome, super nice guy, and he was really uh entertaining to watch him on stage. I think he his second calling was a stand up comic. He he definitely awesome. likes to be the center of attention. Wasn't he playing DJ at the panel you went to? He was, I don't know if he was playing DJ. He was kind of harassing the DJ. He was kind of like over there <laughs> asking questions and messing with things. And yeah. Um, and I met uh, Peter Weller, which was kind of more for Ryan's sake, because he's a huge Robocop fan. Yeah, that's Robocop. Come on. Yeah. Big time I, stuff. I don't think anybody was in that line to see him for Star Trek reasons. I heard several no. conversations about Robocop in line while I was standing there. Um, and he was one of the nicest celebrities I have to say that I've ever come in contact with. Wow. He had like a conversation, like wanted to know, asked me what, what was going on. Um, I told him I was there because my husband was a big Robocop fan and he said, well, why isn't your husband here getting a picture? And I said, cause he's home being a good dad so that I could come to the con this weekend. <gasps> and he just launched into this like questions about my kid. And you know, I have a five-year-old. Oh yeah. I love being a dad. And just like had this really nice comfortable conversation with me about you know being parents that's awesome. not what i expected yeah. <laughs> from robocop, from RoboCop right <laughs> now no. be before i launch into stuff we did together i well carolyn was was with me but i i got to meet john byrne ah nice which was pretty special he was only signing star trek stuff that's not the I first time you've met him though is it yes it is oh wow okay Yes, it is. And I didn't geek out completely. <laughs> At least Carolyn says, so I think I just made a jerk out of myself. But Do she you says, know no. Who you are? Yeah. Uh, uh, so <laughs> I did ask, does he do podcasts? And that's a big no. We've heard that before. But, you know, you, you, you plant the seed. So you or, never know. or we've heard yes. And then yes meant no. <laughs> not, not, yeah, that's happened too. <laughs> and so that was pretty cool. And I don't know if anyone, I know Steve has seen this movie, uh, Free Enterprise. Yes. Well, Mark Altman, who wrote and produced that, was on 14 panels over the weekend. Oh, wow. Wow. So at this one panel I was at, I forget which one it was. I don't have my Star Trek notes here. He was doing a trivia thing. And I'm sitting with Carolyn. And, well, he wrote an episode of the animated series and also wrote the second pilot. And it's like, it's Sam Peebles. But he was giving away the soundtrack to some stupid stuff. No, I'm not wasting my trivia answer on a soundtrack. I want his book. <laughs> and then he went somewhere else. So the next day he was doing another panel about the lost years of Star Trek between the cancellation of the first show and, and the movie. And I walk up to him with my copy of Free Enterprise on DVD. You know, I was a big fan. I own both versions of the DVD and I own the Laserdisc. <laughs> and he went, yeah, that's you and me. We own that Laserdisc. I went, yeah, okay, yeah. No, I'm a big fan. And he, he signed. He signed my copy of the disc, Live Long and Party. Nice. And look, you're a fan of Free Enterprise. I'll give you a book. Great. Uh, what's your favorite Star Trek episode? City on the Edge of Forever. So he writes in it, 
it's the last line that that Kirk says from this horrible. I don't want to spoil this fifty-year-old episode. Let's get the hell out of here. It's probably the first cuss word on network television. Whoa. Whoa. It was. It was. No, I'm sure. Yeah, it was a big deal then. And and he personalizes it, John. <laughs> he signed the other one, Bob. He signs <laughs> this one, John. Hands it to his uh, co-author Ed Gross, who used to work for Starlog, was one of the publishers, editors of that magazine, who follows along and writes John. <laughs> so I now have a, I now have a book, Star Trek: The Fifty Year Mission, personalized to John. Oh no! <laughs> that's uh, so that's come on. That's it, a little it, bit of a disappointment. No, it's a great story. He, if I meet him again, he'll know who I am, and I, he'll know maybe I won't be John. <laughs> but Melissa and I saw some panels that had us all in tears. Which one oh. do you want to go for? For the love of Spock? Well, I just want to say, Bob, uh, the table that you met, um, uh, uh, what's his name? John you just Byrne? said it. Uh, John Byrne, the table that you met him at, I thought it was a funny coincidence, was the IDW table. And I noticed, I'm like, oh, there's comics here. So I ran over there and I was talking to Chris Real yeah. from IDW, He's who's the, the editor yep. in chief. Yep. <laughs> Um, and I, I've talked to him a little bit online, so I ran over to say hello to him and I didn't recognize John Byrne. And, <laughs> and later on, I told Bob that I was talking to Chris Royale and he goes, I was at that table talking to John Byrne. I'm like, really? He was at that table. So we each went to the t- yeah, table. I- they were sitting right next to each other and just didn't recognize the other person. Right, I didn't know Chris Real. I've, I've emailed him before, but I didn't know what he looked like. I wouldn't so. know what either one of them looked like. So it's all good. <laughs> John Byrne looks a lot like you, actually. Oh, no. <laughs> It's like looking into a funhouse mirror of the future. Yeah. Yeah, because he's sort of like my age. But uh, what was your favorite panel, do you think, Melissa? Was it the women of Star Trek? Because that was spectacular, too. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, I, oh, it's a hard it's a hard toss up. Um, I'd have to say the women of Star Trek was probably my favorite just because it was the most surprising. Um, Carolyn had gone to a feminist panel. I think the day before mm-hmm. that she was a little disappointed in. And um, so when we went to this one, we said, well, we'll go to this and we'll try it and hopefully it'll be better. Um, and this panel was Marina Sirtis, who was uh, Counselor Troy from the Next Generation and Nana Visitor and um, Terry, uh, Fa- Terry Farrell. Terry Farrell. Thank you. From uh, Deep Space Nine. And it was... It was hosted by Amy Amy Imhoff. Right? Yes, mm-hmm. that's her name. Um, and it turned out to be a really fantastic panel. Like really great questions, um, really amazing conversation. It was inspirational. Marina Sirtis is a, a fireball, and I just love watching her speak. She was so much fun. Yes. I didn't realize she was such a raging feminist. She was so much fun. She's a. Uh, that from Deanna Troy. She's completely oh. unfiltered and just she just does not pull any shots at all. And she's no. really awesome. entertaining. Um, and the other ladies were absolutely lovely, too. But they had these great they talked about everything from, you know, um, how their characters inspired children and little girls, how um, what kind of backlash they felt about their characters and some of the writing choices that they had um, that their characters had gone through. They talked about the struggles that they had in their careers because of having families and trying to get um, producers to uh, respect their need for schedule, certain schedules, yeah, or for Terry, time to, for their families. Yeah, Terry Farrell's story on that was heartbreaking. 
It, it, I mean, I cried so many times in that yeah. panel. It's ridiculous. I cried the whole weekend. And, <laughs> and then we saw two panels about Spock. So I just cried the whole weekend. Aww. I don't yep. know why I bothered to put makeup on my face. I was just walking around with, like, You were gorgeous. You were absolutely weekend. gorgeous. Oh, thank you, Bob. <laughs> no, we, we saw Adam Nimoy and Julie. Yep. And discussing the growing up within the culture of Star Trek and also was, was Gene uh, Rod Roddenberry is actually Eugene Rod Roddenberry. And the difference between them, Leonard's children were surrounded by Star Trek mm. because at what particularly because at one point 16 magazine put his real street address in the magazine. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they were getting buckets of mail. People oh. showed up. People showed up at his house at Halloween dressed like Mr. Spock. As we're speaking, I got this from Carolyn. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's hysterical. We're all still crying over Spock. Yes. <laughs> a week later. And when they started to discuss who his father was and, and how he grew up and how he had, before Star Trek, had never had a job that lasted longer than two weeks. Wow. And worked it so hard to get this and then wanted to embrace this character and the philosophies, carried it home with them, which created some distance between them. But wow, that was so touching to see these people describing. I, I know, Melissa, Spock is your favorite character. Mm hmm. We had our we had a wonderful conversation for you. After Riker, Megan, yeah, uh -huh. after Riker or before Riker? After well, before Riker, I mean. Okay. And that, how many people were in that room? A thousand, fifteen hundred, and I bet they were all crying. It was special to be in that room, and as a show. We go to so many conventions where it's about the dealer room and what swag you can buy and what stuff you can get. Not to speak too highly of my Trekkie compatriots, <laughs> but this was about the ideas of the show and a, a more blended humanity that always is thinking about how we move forward, how we join together, how we unify races and genders right. and everything and come together. It's about ideas and characters, and it was about panels. We can Every, use a little more of that. Well, it... it for whatever flaws Gene Roddenberry may have had, he created a universe where in, in the 1960s, we had a, look, he still had the, the ladies wearing miniskirts. I'll, I'll, he has a quirk from watching old movies, but we had multiracial diverse casts. We had women at, in his original pilot in a position of power where she was the second in command. The network told him not to do that. Oh, people people don't like that. No one would ever believe that. Well, he ended up moving that actress into the show as Nurse Christine Chapel and married her. Everything else. So you, you have a, a, <laughs> a convention that is not about who I can be seen with, talking to who I can do. Who can I listen to speak about important issues? And we get so many of those panels, and you walk out, Wow, there's a future for all of us. I think there were two uh, two big things that I took away from it that I didn't necessarily um, wasn't conscious of as a Star Trek as a longtime Star Trek fan after this convention. The first one was that um, several times through the weekend, I heard someone on stage give the audience permission to enjoy Star Wars. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's okay to like Star Wars, but 
one thing that Star Trek always had that Star Wars does not bring to the table is that, you know, awareness of like, how do we move forward? Like, how can the future be better? And kind of giving you this outlook, you know, that the future can can do something better and different and bigger than um, than we are in our society, mm-hmm. um, where Star Wars is much more focused on like a fantasy. You know, it's a it's a space opera to yeah. use the yeah. common. You heard term. it here, folks. Star yeah. Trek better than Star Wars. <laughs> oh, stop it, Steve. Amen. So out I, to get me tonight. I, um, I agree uh, with that statement. All right. Let's 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 find a way to wrap it up so we can get to our book. Okay. William Shatner um, rules. There you yeah. go. Uh, yeah. Melissa, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. Anything else? Uh, no. Well, if I can just give my second point. Uh, Absolutely. The, the second thing is, and I'm going to lose it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the second thing is that um, Star Trek uh, fans, I saw repeatedly every single panel we were in, there were Star Trek fans who got up to the microphone and wanted to share stories of how Star Trek had impacted their life in a very serious way. Whether it was going, I saw women talking about going back to school when they were 40. I saw, you know, they told the the cast on stage told stories of meeting veterans all over the world who told them how Star Trek got them through wars and got them through, you know, really difficult times in their life. Um, I saw scientists and doctors stand up there and compliment these cast members on the way that they portrayed certain certain things in the show and how that inspired them to work harder and to make more discoveries in their career. So it really made me realize how much of a big realistic impact on lives that Star Trek has made for so many people. That's awesome. Beautifully, beautifully said. Mic drop. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I like that. <laughs> My All mic right. is hanging, so I can't drop it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to drop us back to the topic at hand. Because uh-huh. we are here to talk about Joe the Barbarian, uh, once again written by Grant Morrison, art by Sean Gordon Murphy, 2010, Vertigo. Uh, the way this podcast works is this: after the banter, we decided to do uh, we're going to do a little synopsis of the book, just in case you're not familiar with it and you're just like listening in and whatever. But we do suggest that you go back and read the book. And then come back and listen to all the discussions that we're about I'll, to have. I'll be right back. You gotta, gonna gonna go, go read, read it right now. I'm gonna go read it right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, G- give we'll me two minutes. I'll be all right. right. Hold on. Okay. Go ahead. Do, you you do, synopsize, and I'll do, I'll read it. Do, do, okay. Do, I'm done. Go. Do, go. Do, 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 do. See, this I could do whatever I want on this show. It's great. <laughs> little little musical interlude. Okay. <laughs> so we're gonna do general impressions, and we will warn you when we're gonna do uh, spoilerific stuff. I gotta be honest with you. I don't know how much spoiler stuff is going to be involved in tonight's. I don't really have like a cutoff point uh, in mind. I think it's all going to kind of mesh together. So just to forewarn you, uh, we might hit on a couple of things uh, that you might want to read the book before you march forward because, into because the unknown. It, it's hard to even discuss it without spoiling. Yeah, yeah it, it really is. This is one of those, one of those special books that uh, you just kind of got to dive right in. There's a lot going on, but uh, for those of you who have yet to read Joe the Barbarian, or you need a little bit of a refresher because you read this last month when we announced it, <laughs> I got a little something-something for you that I put together using the power of Wikipedia and my own know-how. So here we go is a synopsis for Joe the Barbarian. Joe is a... T- no, I'm not going to read it like that. <laughs> no, no, please, please don't. <laughs> Joe, don't? No. Okay. <laughs> no. Joe is it? A- here we go. Take I'll three, wait. and... 
Joe is a teenage boy with type 1 diabetes. When his blood sugar drops and he enters a state of hypoglycemia, he begins to hallucinate. While Joe's health continues to deteriorate, he enters a fantasy world populated with his toys and other fantasy characters. Here is known he, here he is known as the Dying Boy, a fabled harbinger of change and a symbol of hope for a fantastic world besieged by an encroaching darkness. Before long, Joe continues embroiled in a war with a shadowy and sinister entity known to those who fear him as the King Death. Meanwhile, back in the real world, Joe continues to traverse the, size, the sizable manner in which he lives while searching for a soda that will stabilize his blood sugar. He knows that, the, that there's one in the kitchen downstairs, but is extremely far away, made farther by his medical condition affecting his mobility. Should Joe obtain the soda and drink it, the fantasy world will cease to exist. So, the question becomes, can Joe and the colorful cast of characters he meets along the journey restore order to the kingdom before Joe is forced to leave his new friends at the mercy of King Death? And there you have it. Uh, I will open up the floor now. For general impressions. Is there anybody that would like to go first before I, I do scroll down in the page and give my own? <laughs> Bob. I don't do impressions. You don't do impressions? I tell, I tell jokes. I just don't do impressions. Can you tell me a few jokes about what you thought about <laughs> Joe the Barbarian? Here's the thing. This was as Grant Morrison a thing as you could ever read. Because it flits back and forth between worlds. Sometimes not page to page, panel to panel. Mm-hmm. As we go, you have well-crafted characters, which includes people we meet more than once. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to save some stuff for later. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is which is really telling. Lots of emotion. I mean, it, it brings a lot of things together. There's some Toy Story, some small soldiers. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> for, for, for old-timers, there's a little bit of Puff the Magic Dragon. Can we just pause for just one second? Yes. Bronwyn, did you just have like a, a reaction to small soldiers? Do you I like that? Yes. Do you like that yes. movie? I do. I'm sorry. I love it. I knew this is why I married her. <laughs> exactly. Oh. <laughs> <Or> Will. <laughs> okay, Bob, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that we're, kind we're of blew good, my we're mind good for to a go. second. Uh, there are tons of metaphoric stuff going on. I don't know if I want to say I'll save some for later. I'll probably spoil it, but go ahead. Okay, look. Okay, he's he's the dying boy, but he he's a young young man. He's just about to cross into that place, but still has toys, loves playing with things. So is the dying boy? Yes, he's dying mm-hmm. from what's going on in his body. Is it the dying of his youth? Is it his growing up? Oh shit, we're past... already getting deep here. Yes, we are. Mm-hmm. Yes, we are. <laughs> Because I'm going right for the heart. I'm going right for the heart, and and Shut I will I will close heart. I will close my remarks by saying this. A lot of this story revolves around we we begin with watching Joe, who becomes the barbarian, and his mom on the way to school, and he's he's having some problems. Uh, his father has passed away during the war, mm-hmm. so for me personally, uh, this week was my dad's birthday. So reading the story of Someone who's lost his dad is very, very affecting. Mm. And there's a lot of emotion to be had in this story. It comes at you in all sorts of interesting ways. Yeah. In unexpected places. You know, this is, 
again, it is very Grant Morrison, very out there. Art's beautiful, by the way. We'll 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 talk about the art as we go. Yeah. But Morrison is is he's an acquired taste for me. I know some love him. I've always found him very surface. Really? Yeah. It's crazy. Okay. It's crazy, but emotionally, I've never connected with a lot of his stuff in the same way. <laughs> okay. Okay. But here... I'm sorry. Surface is something I never hear associated with Grant Morrison. Okay. Well, see, for me, it it's is... It's all in the mind, Bob. It's all the... Yeah, but... It's all no, the metaphysical No, no for, for me, it's the heart <laughs> is what touches me. And I think this one had that in spades. All right. All right. Melissa. Ah. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't mean, I didn't mean you, Bob. I meant Grant Morrison. You know? Okay. It's all in the head. <laughs> Got to understand the metaphysical space of You're Grant so Morrison. surface, Bob. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I thought this book was incredibly charming and adorable and sad and tragic and, um, yeah, all that stuff. Um, I, no, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Sean Gordon Murphy's artwork already, and I actually was not familiar with this book at all, so I was surprised when I first grabbed it and saw who was doing the artwork for it that I hadn't read it before. Um, it's uh, yeah, I think there's, I think th it's one of those stories that you can read a ton into, as far as um, what they were trying to touch on and what they were trying to incite in people. There's all kinds of directions you can take this in. There's, you know, his relationship with his dad. There's his relationship with his illness, his relationship with his mother, um, who is, you know, often kind of represented as someone who's very distant and um, absent, dis disconnected. And at the same time, she seemed very overprotective and very paranoid um, about him. So there's you know like bob said his connection to his childhood and his loss of his childhood um there's a, a definite like kind of bully theme going on here um you know the theme that we're all probably familiar with of feeling like the odd one out the one that mm -hmm. doesn't belong um and the kid's got a gorgeous house yeah <laughs> i mean i'd yeah. be upset if i was losing the when i said first saw his bedroom i was just in awe of that bedroom like what kid wouldn't want to grow up in that bedroom yeah incredible definitely. yeah um, sure. yeah and it's first first for only an eight issue book it's packed with really interesting characters like you could write like backstories on some of these characters and come up with yeah. just a huge amount of fantasy material mm -hmm. so awesome yeah um, so just to fill in the blanks a little bit for our listeners, uh, the deal is is that the story begins and Joe uh, Joe's mother is basically talking to lawyers and realtors. They're in danger of losing their house. Their house is kind of this manor, if you will, or at least it gives that impression. Mm -hmm. It's really big. Joe lives in this in the attic of this house, and it's just this gigantic, sprawling, right. vaulted ceiling, yeah, like vaulted ceilings, space, yep. nerdy space. Uh, not unlike the attic in uh, the Neverending Story, where the kid is reading the book. So, mm. uh -huh, that'll come up in a little bit. But um, one of the themes throughout the book, as far as the mother is concerned, is that the reason why she's absent from this story, more or less, is because she's off trying to keep the house and, and keep a roof over uh, Joe and and mother's head, and they're they're kind of at a loss because they don't have the proper paperwork in which to own the house it was never theirs 
So that presents a problem uh, for those characters. Uh, Bronwyn, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on Joe the Barbarian. What say you? Okay, well, um, a few things just off the top. Uh, I really, really, really enjoyed this story. Um, I may have over-related to Joe on a couple of levels as well. Um, the, the loss of the father hit me pretty hard as well mm -hmm. um having lost my father relatively recently and his birthday's coming up next month so that sort of struck me um but also just um there's a lot of diabetes in my family and so i've seen some of this progression happen um from an outside perspective but but i've seen this sort of degradation of of perspective happen from the outside which is kind of an interesting thing to have so seeing it happen from the inside is kind of kind of neat and the way he portrays it is um the way the pair of them portray it is really interesting uh, i like the way it's sort of seamless uh, the back and forth between the two the real world and the hallucination and i put real mm -hmm. world kind of in in quotation marks in that way because the differences visually the way they're portrayed um and yeah i'm with melissa on this one i really love the art in this book i was not familiar with the artist beforehand and i, I may specifically go and search him out because I, I really really enjoyed it a lot um the the sort of color and the tone and the saturation and the, the differences between the real world and the hallucination were so vivid but really interesting because they were used to specifically indicate the, the shift in the way his perspective was changing. And I liked the fact that the, they made the choice to make the real world look less vivid and the hallucination more so. Mm -hmm. yeah. I thought that was a really interesting choice, um, sort of to make the emphasis on the fantastical as opposed to the realistic. You know, he was very washed out and he got grayer. I'm just the gonna, real world got grayer as I'm gonna, the story portrayed. I'm going to jump in for just a second, Bronwyn, just mm -hmm. to say Dave Stewart, who did the colors, we have to make sure his name gets mentioned here. Absolutely, because that yeah. Is, yes. Yeah. Yeah, because he's the he's the hero of this piece, to be honest, I think, because that, that color work is really spectacular and very affecting. I honestly, um, I read I read this book. Now, again, you know, I'm I'm a lot of weeks from, from my actual concussion date at this stage, but I'm, I'm fully into post-concussion syndrome at this stage so forgive the sort of stuttering presentation of information but you're doing um, great thank you bob i appreciate that um the way i take in information has changed and the the way i see things and the way i, I um sort of can communicate things has changed a little bit with a little bit of a brain injury and so i'm kind of relating to to joe on that level as well as because yeah. he's slipping back and forth hey. between these perceptions and so even reading through this book i'm i read through it and i read through several sections on like multiple times because i was getting a different thing from it every time i i, I read it because i was in a different place kind of when I, whether I was in a kind of a pain day or a bad pain day or a good pain day or, a, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a lot to relate to in this book, no matter sort of what age or stage of life you're in, there's a lot. Yeah. Or even state of, state of mind day to day. It is that kind of book that can be reread. Exactly. Um, and 
I guess as a last thought, or not last thought, but perhaps last thought for general discussions, um, something that really struck me as interesting um, was that while you see stories kind of like this where the main protagonist goes back and forth between a real world and a fantasy world and which one is really real and oh do you ever really know and is that oh the big twist is oh maybe they were both real or how did they you know and so like this is not new ground that we're treading though I would I would put it forth that the way it's Yes. We're treading it is, is is maybe new. And certainly the the color and the, the art is a phenomenal way to portray it. I was really, really intrigued by the fact that Joe was aware of the transition the entire time. Yeah, that's a game changer. That was yep. really unique. That was really, yeah, as you say, Joe, sorry, Joe, Bob. <laughs> uh, again, broken brain. Um, that, that awareness, that level of awareness was not... Not something that you see in this kind of story archetype. You don't see that. You you see people in the hallucination. They slip into that hallucination fully, and that becomes their real world until they go back into the real world, and then they look back on the memory of the hallucination and they're like, "Oh no, I was hallucinating again." But when they go back into that hallucination, that's their real world, and they lose right the connection to the real world. But for him, he's fully in both places. He's fully cognizant of both places. He's fully aware of the fact that he's slipping between the two and how they relate to one another and how the characters relate to both places. And that n duality never detracts from his commitment to his goals in either location. Awesome. Beautifully said. Yes, very beautifully said. Thank you. Yeah, one of the things that I, I really love, and you, you mentioned kind of the him being cognizant of what's happening to him. One of my favorite parts in the entire book actually happens in issue number one, the very last uh, couple of pages where you have that huge splash page of him uh, down on the ground with all of his toys surrounding him. And on the very next page, you have him in back in his room, kind of back to reality, and he's just looking at everything in front of him going, Oh no. Mm -hmm. Like right in that moment, he realizes that he's having an episode of epic proportions and that he needs to figure out what's going on because not only is his life in danger, but so is his sanity at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think in a, in a state of emergency, speaking as, as someone who has been in moments of, of, absolute like mental chaos from a physical ailment or something happening uh that disconnect is very real you know as you're fainting out or as you're going down the world seems to slip away and to be clinging to your reality the whole time and then going so far as to try to live in both worlds to accomplish both tasks i just i love the struggle between the reality and the fantasy and Joe trying to find the delicate balance between existing and both in order to get the job done, to save the world and save himself in the process. He's trying to do something more than exist. Yes. He really wants to live. Yeah. And the, that gumption right. is palpable. It is really there. You, you can really relate mm -hmm. to him as a character who wants to do something right. better. So and it's interesting to me, uh, sorry. No, no, no. Just that it seems to take this, like this seems to be a trigger point for him because I think prior to this sort of crisis point, 
he hadn't necessarily been living. That's very true. That moment in the in the cemetery, mm-hmm. ah. where he's yeah. see, this is why we do this. Yes, exactly. This is what I'm talking about, and and that plays into some of the people he meets later on. Yes, it does. Ah. Hey. And the roles they play. Yeah. All right. So, um, just another uh, another little backstory, just for people uh, that haven't read the book. While Joe is having this uh, hypoglycemic attack. He basically he falls out of his bed. He has it while in his uh, lofty attic uh, room, bedroom, and he discovers that all of his toys have come to life and are now involved in this fantasy story that's happening as he's dying, as his brain cells are popping off. And he basically falls out of his bunk to realize that he's surrounded by his friends, but also his action figures. And one of my favorite things about this uh, book, and um, this is going into my general impressions, is this is like this book is like a where's waldo of yes. old school toys and action figures and if you have the little checklist on the side like go and find bumblebee from the transformers go find batman and robin or even from the animated series the gray ghost mm-hmm. which was which was a really nice touch uh you've got snake eyes you've got mask you've got santa claus uh wonder woman shows up and it it's just I don't even know if this is true. I can't tell if maybe they're from somewhere else, but I'm pretty sure that the noozles from Nickelodeon cartoons as I were as I was growing up are in this book, which <laughs> I think is just absolutely phenomenal. There was a character in there that looked a lot to me like Jean-Luc Picard, but I Oh, absolutely. Thinking, yep. No, is I that agree. who that was? <laughs> yes, on a, with a crutch, right? Yeah, and he yes. had the little like ray gun and a I no, thought, it's is definitely that really him. John Luke? Yes. yes, it is. I, it, it really looks like him. No, it's him. I love that he's missing the bottom part of his left leg. Right. But yeah. instead of it just being like tucked in pants or, or pinned pants, he's yeah. actually like the hinge on the leg where the action figure hinge would be is yeah. missing. Yeah. I love that. It's like you can see the toys that are more heavily loved, right? Yeah. Yep. They're a little worse for wear. And... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Totally. Um, so. Uh, for those who haven't guessed, I, I was I chose the book this week. I personally love this book. I wanted to do one of my favorite books and especially something to share with uh, my friends and loved ones for this podcast. And uh, I think it's by far the most accessible Grant Morrison book that I've personally read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do find his stuff very wild and very out there from time to time. Even as out there as this book is and as much as you can dig into it, I feel like this is a more reader friendly something that you can give someone Uh, like we did all star Superman not too long ago Mm -hmm. as part of Bobby's farewell. And even that was like really cerebral and really digging into it. And so is this, but in a different way, in a, in a more playful, more fantastical way where you're not dealing, you are dealing with superheroes in terms of like the background characters or tertiary cast of the book. But this is more in the vein of like eighties fantasy. Uh, it really reminds me of uh, stories like the never ending story movies, like labyrinth legend, willow return yeah. to Oz. Okay. Yeah. Things like that. It's got a very Tolkien esque, uh, Tolkien esque journey feeling about it though. It's funny. Yes. You should right. say Quest that the, yeah. The fellowship. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I actually have something to read after I'm done. Uh, that alludes to that after giving my, uh, my general impressions. So, uh, I love that the people in Joe's real life show up show up as characters in the fantasy world, 
uh, it kind of reminds me of the way that our minds assign people that we know to represent different aspects of ourselves when we dream. That as he's kind of going into this otherness of himself, he's filling in the blanks and filling these characters that bring him through death and through his survival by taking school kids and other characters that I won't get into until spoiler territory. And even his, even his pet rat makes uh, an appearance. And I just, I uh, wait, wait, no, no, don't do that. What? That's not spoilery. No, no, not that it's spoilery. Don't play Jack off is like minimize. Yes. Minimizing. I'm sorry. I just realized I said that. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. That's a whole different podcast. Jack is such a spectacularly great character yes. here. It's yes. big time. His pet rat. Um, and... I wondered a few times if Jack was one of those therapy animals because right? of the way that wow. he was so on top of. Yeah. An know. MD recommended sense of purpose. No. Well, you know, like they have, <laughs> you know, they have uh, pets that are like trained to recognize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to recognize kids with uh having like uh like diabetics and you know ki uh kids with um what's the other one i'm trying to think of uh epilepsy um the rat brings up his insulin yeah people are like at you know they have these pets that are trained to like recognize when the kid is in danger because of their medical condition wow never thought of that mm. that's great that's awesome um normally a rat would just get out of their cage and take off right? just right? sniff around <laughs> and then peace out you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I love the blur between uh, fantasy and reality and how Joe's mind and body are constantly struggling to save both himself and the kingdom. I thought just the the duality of that and the, the jumping, the seamless jumping uh, in between and how, you know, the I love the parallels drawn between the real world and the fantasy world, how one thing affects the other, how the overflowing of the bathtub, the soda that he needs the circuit board in the basement, the stairs are, are in his real life. They're stairs, but in the fantasy world, they become mountains and it's something that he needs to traverse. And he's just, he's in this terrible state, you know, this terrible physical and mental state. And how do you do this? That something as simple as climbing a few stairs would appear as a mountain mm -hmm. as you're in that moment and you're having that struggle. And I just think it's, Really, really beautifully crafted and executed both by uh, Grant Morrison and Sean Gordon Murphy. Um, and just to put you at ease from something you said before, Bronwyn, I have at least three or four uh, major runs of something that Sean Gordon Murphy did the art for. And his stuff only gets better. Most recently, uh, his Tokyo Ghost stuff with Rick Remender is in sane oh i cannot wait to read that run I second yeah. that yeah uh punk rock jesus is another one um oh, although i never read the last issue because i heard that it was but i do have it we can read it in the future there's yes, a please. there's a painterly quality to this though yes mm -hmm. that is very classic it's and, spectacular and, right and and the funny thing is it is both in the classic grid pattern and then breaks it apart the next page or halfway through a page where you're looking at one thing and he uses the actual layouts to drive your eye yep. to the next panel. Masterful. Absolutely masterful. I really do think, though, that the colorist 
really he he deserves a tip of the hat for this oh. one. Here's a question: Do you know who the colorist is and what he's famed for doing? Well, we I mentioned his name a little earlier, so. Yeah. Alessa, would you care to tell the audience? I don't know what he's famed for, though. Oh. Dave Stewart. He was in the Eurythmics, right? Dave Stewart. Oh, wait. Was it Sandman? Was he on Sandman? Maybe. <laughs> All right. I'll tell you what I know him from. Uh, okay. It starts with H. Yeah, it starts with an H. Oh, Hellboy. Yeah, yes. there you go. Yes, Dave Stewart. Oh, that is makes in... a lot of sense. Yep. He is that an integral of part sense. of the Hellboy universe, yep. for sure. Yeah, uh, he I, also that... did the Umbrella Academy, which is a less yes. known but one of my favorite Ooh. fun little stories. Yeah. Yo, I've been staring at the second volume of that. They have the deluxe volume over at Heroes in Canada that has been sitting on the shelf for probably about a year and a half. And every time what are you I waiting see it, for? I... ah, it's a money <laughs> thing, Bob. Okay. Oh, he he also colored Day Tripper, which I know was to the favorite of. <gasps> yes. Of Spoiler alert, that's going to be a future uh, top shelf <laughs> comic book club book for sure. We're like five episodes ahead already. I like this. I know, it's good. It's yeah. We've already got them plotted. Plan yeah. for the future. <laughs> yeah. Can I just, before we totally get off the subject of Grant Morrison, put in my two cents on that? Yeah. Because he, like, I got to tell you, like, I'm not usually, I'm not usually thrilled with Grant Morrison because he's so cerebral and just frou-frou. Meta. Just, yep. Yeah, meta, weird, hippie stuff all over the place. Hey, um, us hippies resent that. <laughs> no, no you don't. <laughs> yeah, his stuff is usually all over the place to me and confusing, and I'm just, what the hell is going on here? I don't know. Um, uh, and I'm a fan of Warren Ellis, so to say that means a lot. Yeah. Um, but this one I actually found to be really fairly clear-cut. Like, there's a lot going on but I had no trouble understanding exactly what was going on all the time. And I thought it was actually really, you know, really like clean and upfront for Grant Morrison. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even placed it as a Grant Morrison story if I didn't know it was from him mm -hmm. um, because it was so easy. Now I do want to say one of the things I like to do when I look at these books is also read critical reviews of books. So <laughs> criticisms. Oh boy. If I could just share this really funny review that I read really fast. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just a small smidgen of it because sure, it's definitely. hilarious. Okay. Somebody who gave it a one-star review. Okay. <laughs> she said, <laughs> um, most of it, yeah, if, most of it is rambling nonsense, but since it's my kid telling the story, I listen anyway and usually clap at the end. She's comparing it to a story that a child tells you and you just have to pretend that you like it because it makes no sense. And then she says, I didn't, however, give birth to Grant Morrison. So in my opinion, it just sucked. Um, and what I found really interesting is every negative review that I found of this, their argument was that they felt like it made no sense because it's Grant Morrison, which that's terrible. To me, it's just reviewing. right. Right. Like, well, we know that he writes weird and crazy stuff that goes off the rails, but that doesn't mean that everything he writes should be reviewed on that basis okay let's say we replace the name grant morrison with l frank baum <laughs> what? yeah the guy who wrote the wizard of oz okay. yeah exactly oh i couldn't understand because they're in this other place and they come back and no grow a pair so, sorry like like do we I... review everything that alan moore writes based on right. the fact that we know he's a freaking lunatic sometimes you know oh don't get me started on him who no, supposedly don't. just retired 
from. That's exactly it. Like you hey, don't man, please. You shouldn't thank review you. if you're reviewing yeah. a piece of work, you review the piece of work, not the Absolutely. person who wrote it. Like, well, it doesn't make sense to me. It must be because I don't understand this writer. Yeah, well, and I mean, realistically speaking, if it doesn't make sense to you, that's fair. But you do need to look at the point that it might be you and not the book. (laughs) No, yeah, no, I found it very, 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 um, I found it very, I found it surprising that that was the criticism. Because when I read it, I thought I wouldn't even know this was Grant Morrison. It was so easy to understand. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this, this is pretty archetypal, you know, like it's not, and that is not, to say that the story is simple it's well crafted it mm-hmm. it flows from a to b to c to d and that's great it is layered there are complexities you can go mm-hmm. back and get a little bit more information with multiple reads there are there's nuance there's all sorts of things like that so it, it, there is there are elements of the grant morrison ishness <laughs> perfectly perfectly stated He's but definitely yeah, an ishness, yeah. There, there's definitely an 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 arrow through this this book yeah. from beginning to end. You know, like you 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 don't have to take any detours if you don't want to. <laughs> right, it, but if you choose to, they're there. They're there. They're available to you yeah. if right. you want them. And but very well a... organized and very clear. Yeah. Yes. Well, to to counter that took that that five star review. <laughs> I actually have some words uh, from Grant Morrison about the uh, creation of the book and tells you where he got his influences uh, oh. from to write it. Now, the only thing that I've Illegal ever substances? seen. What's that? Illegal substances? No. The okay. only thing that I've ever seen from Grant Morrison, I've seen two things. I've seen him at a panel where he did absolutely nothing but sit stock still and look very bald and very intense. <laughs> And yes, then the, he is that. the <laughs> other thing that I saw him in was a music video that looked like it would have been playing yes. on the Jumbotron in Matrix Revolutions during the rave that they had. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, I'll probably include it in the please, show notes yeah, on the Talking do. Comics website because please it do. is hysterical. I'm sure Grant Morrison will appreciate that if he happens to take <laughs> I love you, Grant. You've given me some good times, man. All the power to you. But so I don't know what he sounds like, but I'm going to read this part in what I imagine would be a Grant Morrison He's Scottish. voice. Is he? Yes. Shit, that totally blows my whole <laughs> And type. not an easily distinguishable Scottish, like not the kind of Scottish that you can understand really well. <laughs> I was obsessed with future books. No. Warp engine's not working, Captain. Here we go, here we go. Okay. <laughs> I was obsessed with fantasy books when I was a young teenager. That's Jason Statham. Alan Garner. No, it's not. <laughs> totally not. If anything, it's the honest trailer guy. Okay. All right. Tolkien, Alan Garner, Susan Cooper, Robert E. Howard, Michael Moorcock, Stephen Donaldson, Anything I could get my hands on. I even wrote two big swords and sorcery novels back then, but I'd never done a fantasy comic before, and it seemed like an interesting challenge to do a real proper kind of Lord of the Rings, Alice in Wonderland, all-ages story for today. Uh, It wasn't bad if you were going for South Park. That was (laughs) terrible, but who cares? It was good. You had the emotion. That's what's important. I have the passion for everything, Bob. But that was very telling. 
Boogie, you were talking about 80s fantasy films? Yeah. And so he was right there in that wheelhouse. Yeah. That stuff, I think that stuff serves for a lot of inspiration. I mean, just recently... Uh, I Susan Cooper on that list. Yeah. Uh, Stranger Things on Netflix. By the way, if you have not checked that out, go watch it because it's... Stop it's, rubbing it in, all right? Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Um so we should probably move into spoiler territory. Does anybody have anything specific that they want to mention for, for spoiler stuff? Or do we want to start uh, asking questions? Um, solemn vow of cowardice. I laugh my ass yes. off. In what way? How funny is that? That's yes. amazing. The Tower of... What was it? The, what was it? The Tower of... Oh, my God. What was it? Oh, what did they live in? It was the invention, Tower of Discovery. The Tower of Discovery, that whole Tower of Discovery was amazing. I loved every minute of those guys and their, their TV watching and their musty operator's manuals and the apprenticeship where you finish it off by taking your solemn vow of cowardice. They love to hysterical. remind you about how important they are, right? Yes. <laughs> they just kept reminding you about how important everything they were doing was. <laughs> But they couldn't actually help because of the solemn vow of cowardice. <laughs> they kind of reminded me a little bit of the dude from Labyrinth that kind of sits in the middle of the labyrinth that has that rooster on his yes. head and the little change jar. Yeah. And the rooster <laughs> but, hat yells at him. <laughs> but it's the sons and daughters of great necessity. Yes. Yes. Well, of course, you know, necessity being the mother of invention. Exactly. Exactly. It is, wanna... It's very Python-esque. Uh, yes. Yes. Very Terry is. Pratchett. In, yes, in, very in, in Terry Pratchett. Yep. For sure. I want to um, ask Steve specifically because I know that you're a big fan of a particular series. Um, we keep comparing this book to things like Never Ending Story, and it, which I it was obvious has a lot of comparisons to that. But one of the criticisms I saw of this was someone felt like that it was um, too derivative of I Kill Giants. And I'm interested in if you saw any connection between those two stories. Derivative of like Kill Giants? They, they felt like it was literally like a a, a, a repeat of that story. What that year did I Kill Giants come out? That's a very First good time question, around. Bob. I should probably know that. Because this is now so far back. They could actually be contemporaries. Um, I mean, I don't know anything about that. I certainly did not think of I Kill Giants while reading. I didn't Joker. either. Neither, no, that didn't yeah. really come up. For you me. know what it is? If 2008, you, by the way. Like if you, for if I you, Kill Giants? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like if you break apart stories and you take, you know, some of the main elements, the either dead or dying parent, the journey of acceptance. I mean, once you start plugging those things in, you can definitely be like, oh, this is a derivative of this thing and it's that It's to thing. kill a mockingbird. Right. Like, yeah, right. I rattled yeah. off like five or six movies that this reminds me of. You could say it's derivative of those things, too. Right. You know? I'm not asking necessarily if we agree with that criticism, because I don't think any of us does. Obviously, we're yeah, fans yeah. of the book. But yeah. I was just curious. I know that, that, that you're a huge fan of that series, and I was just curious if you saw any connection to that. I mean, sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, thematically, for you know, there are definitely things, but uh, there's only been maybe one or two things that I've come across uh, since reading I Kill Giants that has really kind of directly reminded me of it. And uh, I mentioned this on the last uh, Talking Comics podcast. 
but the movie that's about to come out, uh, When a Monster Calls, really, yeah. really, just in that like two and a half minute long trailer, that has more I Kill Giants in it than this book does for me, for sure. Um, I mean, right down to the whole mother having cancer, having to say goodbye, and calling the giant titanous tree monster thing to help you work through the pain, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So I'm really, like, and I said it on that podcast, I'll say it again. I'm really hoping that people find a place in their heart for uh, I Kill Giants when it's released after uh, When a Monster Calls comes out, because I already have a couple of people who I work with that are calling it the best movie of the year. I don't know much about that movie, but when I saw the trailer, my husband and I saw the trailer before Star Trek, I believe, mm -hmm. and we were both we were both in tears by the end of the trailer. I we want just looked at each other see... like, oh crap, you're crying, I'm crying too. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> like Kubo and the Two Strings was the was the movie for the rest of the year that I really wanted to see and 10 out of 10, absolutely phenomenal, like a rules, but the When a Monster Calls is the other movie that I am just like foaming at the mouth to go and see it. It looks so affecting and so magical. And I love kind of that like mirror masky uh, look of it and the fantasy world and him saying like, you know, destroy the church, destroy the windows and the monster saying, giving, handing him a bat and saying, no, you do it. You need to break things. And then the mother coming to him and saying, if you need to break something, by God, you do it. Whatever you need to do to get through this, to say goodbye to me, you do that thing. And, oh, God, I can't wait for that movie to, to hit theaters. I'm so excited for it. I'm going to ugly cry through the whole thing. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> can't wait to cry. Anyway, moving right along. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're kind of already in spoiler territory. I only have a few things written down. But it's more like questions for the group as to whether or not you uh, you picked up on things or what you thought of things. And uh, so we're going to kind of roll into spoiler territory slash question territory. Uh, if you haven't read the book, I suggest that you maybe stop listening to the podcast, go read it, and then come back and listen to the rest of it. Or if you just want to keep going because you're having such a good time like we are, you just hang out. So, uh, so here's the first thing that I, I spoilery thoughts for me. Um, <laughs> this happens to do with the very end of the book. So just listener warning, but while it's a nice tie in as to why the picture frame in the house, there's a series of, of photographs that are in picture frames inside of Joe's house. There's four of them. Three of them are right side up. One of them is upside down. It happens very early in the book, and there's no explanation for it. It's one of those but either you noticed it or you didn't. But there is a chapter heading for number six. Yeah. It's not the picture that's upside down. It's the world. It's the world. Ooh. Getting deep. Yeah. Like so it. it's like I, that struck me, but I hadn't noticed that. Okay. I beforehand. had noticed, but I assumed that the photo was supposed to look like that. Like that they had taken a picture where like they were, I figured like, you know, cause his dad was in the military or something yep. that they were paratroopers and they were, you know, doing some sort of oh, training uh. and that they were supposed to be upside down. I assumed that it was supposed to look like that. Interesting. See, I, I think, am I the only one in the group that's read this book before the podcast? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I didn't, <laughs> I didn't particularly remember 
like the ending ending. I knew that eventually they saved the house, but I didn't remember particularly how. And so I, when I was reading the book and I saw the upside down frame, I was like, hmm, what is going on? Why? All right. Like, I hope that by the time that we get to the end of this book that they explain that because otherwise that's really going to bother me. <laughs> so my question is this. It was pretty irresponsible of the father to hide something as valuable as the deed to a house inside of a picture frame that he'd hoped that his wife would notice and then go and take it off the wall. And no, I just, I disagree. Uh, well, so does Bob. So, so let's wrong. hear it. Let's go hear wrong. it. Okay. I disagree because my impression from the letter that is with the deeds was that this was a thing he did all the time. Mm -hmm. And as people are, even in somebody like uh, the father who is in the military, and that's very obviously high risk job and, you know, all, all thanks and, and, uh, you know, respect for people who can do that um, and all those high-risk positions. No one expects to go to work and die. Mm -hmm. No one ever expects that. So my impression from the letter was that every time he went off, he turned that picture upside down and three days later, she flipped it back around. And so he had put this letter, this communication with the deeds, behind there knowing she would find it three days later when she flipped it back around and the only reason that she didn't flip it back around this time was because she was still waiting for him to come home because he hadn't because he was dead i like that hadn't thought of that see to me it's it's an old movie trope it's the money hidden in a chair mm -hmm. from the 12 chairs eventually it's in the bag if you go back to fred allen and jack benny it is Little Rascals episode where the old lady has got her gazillion dollars worth of stock certificates hanging on a kite that will save her house and, and all the kids that she's going to let live with her. So uh, Grant Morrison, I think, is around my age. Mm -hmm. So he probably saw the same old black and white yeah. movies that I did. So I think what you've hit upon, Bronwyn, is, is that he took that and made it into something new. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a little crazy. Why would you do that? But it comes from a good place, maybe. Well, he, uh, Bronwyn, I agree with Bronwyn, and she's right. I'm actually rereading that letter right now. Um, but, yeah, it's, it sounds like she, she doesn't necessarily turn it back around when he comes home, but she turns it back around exactly three days after he leaves. Yeah. And he says that Junior tells, Junior says that she does that for luck. So I assumed when I read it too that she just never turned it back around because she I assumed because she found out at that point that he had He's, died. Yes, yeah. And and that was lost, you know, like that that she why would she turn it back around There's for no luck? luck? Right, or she, why would she think of that in a time of mourning? Um and he also points out in the letter it sounds like he found the deed sort of mistakenly somewhere in the basement. He points out that his father had left it somewhere in the basement and he just dug it up. So it wasn't like he had the deed and he decided to give it to her in that way. He just found it and decided to kind of surprise her, you know, with the news while he wasn't around. Like yeah. it was something that they were both wondering about and looking for. Like as if you wow. lost a piece of jewelry yeah. and he found it somewhere in a box and said, oh, yeah. I'm going to surprise her, you know? Yeah, exactly. Here's a question. I'm, I'm looking at the letter now. Uh, it's addressed to my dearest Queen Bree. Sabrina. Yeah. Her name is Sabrina. Right. 
So here's the thing. Was this, do we think that maybe this was a name that he used around the house? Because sure. Joe, you know, we're in spoiler territory now. Uh, the lady in mourning. Yeah, the lady in mourning. Joe's mother actually shows up as the queen of the fantasy world, at least Joe's side of it. Yes. And uh, did did Joe know that his mother was referred to as Queen Bree oh, by his father? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. at least yeah. subconsciously, I would say, yeah. Right. 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 I mean, that whole um, him uh, having the um, uh, what's it called? Um, the visions. I'm not finding the right word for that. Hallucinations. Um, hallucinations. Thank you. <laughs> Him having that, I felt it's just basically like dreaming, right? Like you, yeah. you use names and words that you're familiar with and locations that you're familiar with in your dreams, even if you don't consciously realize that. Yeah. So those people were just being represented in ways that Joe was familiar with. Right. I mean, I guess it's a, a take on the idea of a queen bee. Yes. So he, she's mm-hmm. queen Bree. Right. So. There were some things that would have to happen. Little little boy like that, all those things just filter into your head. Exactly. And now as he grows up and now experiences other things emotionally, understands the loss of his dad, the connection between a father and mother when one's absent, has to, that has to play into this. So, boy, I'm, I'm going to get weepy. <laughs> I know. I have to say, to... as a as a parent, this book gave me a lot of tension. <laughs> yeah. I felt really tense and nervous and scared the entire time I read this. When it was, I found it was really interesting to see how Joe and his hallucinations, his subconscious interpretation of his mother's loss of his father, because you know you're you're seeing him and and him trying to kind of work through some of his own feelings about the loss of his father. And I, you know, I know the, that situation myself and, but you know, he's, he's a teenager and, and he never, you know, he's still arguably in that stage where he hasn't really processed the transition of parent to equal to relationship as an adult, you know? So his parents are still his parents. They're not people to him him necessarily you know what I mean like so processing their relationship as adults to one another as as lovers to one another as people who are deeply connected and in love with one another and so for her loss to be that that significant to have frozen her in time you know which is he I think is very solidly portrayed in his subconscious hallucination hallucination you know she's stopped she's just I, I, f- I felt like the way that he saw the queen how she was you know he kept saying like she's just pretending that nothing's happening and she's sort of just going on it w- with life in her bubble she's ignoring what's happening outside I feel like that's how a teenager would interpret a parent in her situation who's so overwhelmed and mm-hmm. engulfed in all these legal matters and in trying to figure out how to survive that her husband a teenager sees that as like oh she's not paying attention she doesn't know what's happening she's she's just pretending everything's fine you know and from her perspective see a little bit of that transition and as you get towards the end of the book where she kind of almost breaks down a little bit towards the end right Right. from her perspective she's probably trying to maintain a a scene that everything's okay and to to create that safety bubble for him but he sees it as he sees it as a way of her ignoring what's happening 
And that's a nice, a nice example of the disconnect between, I think, a parent and a teenager. Absolutely. Yeah. Until you can cross that gap. Mm -hmm. Word. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Keep up. (laughs) We can. But now let's jump into Joe also sees people from his life. Yes. Pulling into this world. And there's something as we get near the end that I, I do want to ask about, though you may ask us about. Go for it, Bob. Well, we see the Zixi. Mm-hmm. I love that, yeah. Who's the young lady who actually tries to sort of comfort him at the cemetery when he's been bullied. Mm-hmm. And yet those bullies, in the form of Prince Smoot, oh, you're just a fat kid from school. They're there in the same sort of place, but it's as if he wants to reach across the gap. He may see a kindred spirit in Smoot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But doesn't know quite how to do this, so there's there's an off putting yeah you know that's a good question i mean we never really see the real life equivalent to smoot's character mm-hmm. do we think that smoot is actually a part of joe and that's what manifests inside of the fantasy oh. because or is it a, just a, a character that we didn't get to meet because there just wasn't enough time with joe spent at school there is one larger person at the cemetery but it isn't direct in the same way that we see the other people. Mm. So he could just be a fill-in for all the people Wow, who are coming at him. Mind blown. <laughs> it could kind of be the bullied side of Joe, though, because in this yeah. world, he's he's seen as, like, the hero, right? The, I mean, not the hero, but he's the... Um, he's the, the prophecy. He's somebody who's big uh, and important. Yeah, so he's maybe the savior, he, yep. Right, Smoot yeah. represents like the the scared, bullied, picked on part of the himself. Misfit. Yeah, yeah, the real I, Joe. <laughs> I love, I love that Smoot is. Oh, how did I even? Write? I wrote it down. He was so hysterical. He's the oddly normal sized giant dwarf prince. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 let's just get really heavy for a second here in our little nerd bubble that we're all living in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Smoot, right? His original thing where he's he's disillusioned is his idea that he's a giant in a world of yes right he's he's bigger than he's he's bigger than everybody else and that's why there's something wrong with him he's the wrong one because he's because he's big and right takes up too much room and then once he gets out in the rest of the world he realizes he's just like everybody else and the people that he's been living amongst those are the weird ones like they're small they're tiny and he's just like everybody else and to him that makes him feel more accepted like he feels like, oh, I can do just what everybody I can do what everybody else can do. Like I'm not the weird guy. I'm not I'm not in the way. Mm-hmm. You but know? I like that he also has a moment though where that's almost off putting because then he's not special anymore. Right. right. And he has to be told, be a giant. Yeah. Right. Now has anyone seen the movie well, tangent here? The Mighty? Oh, that sounds so familiar. Yeah, yeah me too. Sharon Stone, it's one of the Culkin kids. It's Rory? Uh, Kieran? Kieran Kieran Culkin. Culkin? Okay. It, it's about a, a little boy, Kieran Culkin, who is badly disabled and manages to still go to school with, with braces and crutches and the whole mess and meets up with a rather large other kid, big kid, who helps him out. And they form, it's from a book called Freak the Mighty. Gillian Anderson's in it as well. It is absolutely heartbreaking and touching at the same time and anyone who loved this would love The Mighty. It came out about 15 years ago. I remember it. I remember the title for sure. Hmm. Anyway. Right. Anyway. Anyway. 
Um, Digression. Does anybody have any other like general spoilery thoughts that they want to press upon uh, before we get into some of the questions that we have in the outline? Generally spoily. Yeah, just so that we cover all the bases. I don't really have too much to say until no, we get to the I, I mean, we, we've talked about who's in the group of people. We've talked about, you know, in terms of his toys and whatever. And all right. that's one of your questions I think we will. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll get to I'm so. going to kind of bop around a little bit. One okay. of the characters that I actually want to talk about that we, uh, we touched on a little earlier is the character of Shaq and or Jack. Jack yeah. is... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He is Joe's pet rat in the real world that lives in the cage in his uh, lofty attic a bedroom. And now in the fantasy world, he is a survivor and warrior of the brothers that fell before him. We see them hanging. You see them hanging. He's known as in the in the group, in the family, as kind of the jester or the juggler of the group. He's Runt not- of the litter. Yeah, the runt of the litter, not the warrior, and something happens to his the the king death has come and has taken the lives of his brothers, and Jack is the only one left. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't put this in the outline, but did anybody get the feeling that that part of the story, that the brotherhood part of the story, is maybe instead of it being a part of Joe, that it's actually delving a little bit into Jack? itself the rat that sometimes when rats are born there's so many of them that so many of the siblings pass away before they have a chance at life that maybe jack was the only surviving child of the birth of his mother hmm. I hadn't yeah. thought of that. and maybe like she that. ate the rest of them i like that <laughs> maybe joe had a snake he was feeding rats to the snake we don't we i do not telling a metaphorical story of rat cannibalism for this childhood <laughs> Which leads me to my question. It's back for the sequel, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, perhaps it was just me who felt that it was a little unclear. But uh, at some point in this, in the adventure, Jack accepts Joe's friendship. He's very uh, standoffish at the beginning of the adventure, kind of like the more fantasy world stuff. And uh, at what moment? It seemed very sudden where Joe's in trouble. And Jack is alarmed and looking to help Joe in any way he can. That it was a very hard shift from being stubborn and not wanting to be a part of the grand scheme to being very connected to Joe and wanting to protect him. Where do you think that that happened? Like he meets with he meets with the with the great necessity, right? And he is saying, like, you have to help him. He's my friend. Pages before that, he was very stubborn and very standoffish and didn't even want to be a part of the story. But then all of a sudden he changed. What do you think was the thing that made him change? For me? Yeah. That was the moment where um, they met the uh, pipe pirates. Yeah, here we go. The pipe pirates showed them the, uh, the mosaic of the dying boy and everything started to click. It started to come together as the prophecy. And he was kind of, he, he was the, the linchpin of this whole thing, you know? So uh, King Death had come and, and sort of wiped out Jack's brothers and he'd wiped out all these people and they'd lost the war and everything was hopeless. And Jack had just given up. 
you know, there was nothing was going to go right. This was over. And along comes this kid and, you know, he's like, all right, well, whatever, maybe I'll help you. Okay, fine. But I don't really have anything invested in this. And they come to this place where they run into the pipe pirates and they, they kind of go in the same direction because they're helping each other and they get here and this prophecy that everybody seems to know about, about the dying boy is just been that it's just been a prophecy. It's just been a story. It hasn't been anything real in their world. And this is of course in the world of hallucination. So I'm using the word real and mm-hmm. kind of a facetious sense, but still, um, and they go and they see this mosaic and it is quite clearly Joe's face. And so in for all intents and purposes, the, the prophecy has become a real thing. Joe is actually the thing that King Death will fear. There is actually a chance. There is actually a hope. There is actually something that can be done. Jack maybe does have a role in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, At that point, he, his investment is back. He's got buy-in. Yeah, I'm with you on that, and it, it follows soon after that where they're having dinner with the with the toilet pirates or whatever you want yeah. to call them, <laughs> where uh, Jack has they're, they're discussing whether they're going to take Smoot along on their quest. Yep. And it's no, we're we're going to go as a team, as a duo. Yep. Mm-hmm. What's up with the whole toilet pirate thing? Will you ever see flushed away? The pipes, the pipes are calling. No, I actually have this one argument. Oh, movie you've got to see seen. that one. Isn't it like a James Bond Aardman film? Kind of. Kind of a lot of great people in that. Was it Toilet Pirate or did they call them? What was, what was the, the night was calling them like Toilet Dwarfs or something? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I thought it was pretty cool how um, like each issue begins with uh, a quote that eventually shows up within the issue. And uh, they give you art to go with that quote. And it's... Uh, Jack and Joe kind of staring in what almost looks like a like a vacant mirror. And then if you flip from page to page, it's the mosaic. So it's it's not there and the quote is there. And then the mosaic is there kind of filling in the blanks for you and uh, setting that moment off for the reader, which I thought was yeah. pretty cool. Um, I thought the relationship changed around the, the point that they met the pirates as well. But I also... Find, I also saw it a little bit simpler than what Bronwyn said in that, um, like you were talking about how uh, Jack feels like he he's the runt of the litter and he's kind of the jokester and he kept repeating like, I'm not a warrior, I'm not a hero, you can't put your life in my hands, you know, um, and um, Joe kept encouraging him and kept showing him that he was he was his hero and kept kind of proving to him over and over again, how much he needed him. So I think a transformation just kind of happened with Jack more so that he felt like, okay, he really does need me. And I really am maybe more than I think I am and I can accomplish this and I can do this. And so, you know, that kind of old thing where they needed each other equally and Jack realized that he needed Joe because his brothers were gone. So what else did he have? You know, they just didn't play that out in, you know, literal terms like they do sometimes in films where they have to have this dialogue where, you know, a montage, <laughs> right? Where they say, Oh, you know, I do need you. Yeah. And what else do I have 
to do, you know? I might as well be the hero and take care of you. I think that kind of thing occurred too. Their friendship just changed because Jack found his own self-worth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love yeah. that. Now, am I being too literal in thinking John Steinbeck and of Mice and Men and Lenny and George? No. <laughs> oh, wow. I think it's a good analogy, actually. <laughs> oh, man. That is one of the books that I think I remember the most from my schooling days. And and that that ending stuck yeah. with me throughout the years. The rabbits. Tell me about the rabbits, Tell George. Tell me about the rabbits, George. But it, again, it's it's two people who needed each other. Here are two people who need each other to be complete. Yeah. Man. Ah, moving on. Moving on. Uh, another question. There's a point in the story where Joe, uh, we had mentioned it before, that the stairs kind of turn into mountains. How do you think Joe traversed the stairs uh, going down into the basement. He blacks out at one point. And like, what exactly do you think brought him back from such a state of weakness? Do we think that it was just the fantasy world, the encouragement of his friends? Because there has to be, there ha- like they bo- the, both things have to exist, right? He has to have something in the fantasy world and then something in the real world to snap him back into coherence, at least for him enough to get down the stairs. What happened that he actually came out of that? Anyone? His therapy rat. Yeah. <laughs> his mom. His, okay. His love so for his mom. You say Jack and you say Queen Bree. Mm-hmm. Bob, go ahead. Well, here's someone who's lost his father, who if even if his mom is overprotective, she is going through so much. She's so much a part of his story in the fantasy world as this put-upon figure that she doesn't know quite where to be, wants to keep the world in a certain place. He doesn't want to be the person that disrupts that. So whatever it will take him to get down those stairs to make sure he doesn't die mm-hmm. and leave his mother with nothing. Mm-hmm. Damn. Damn. Anyone else? Anyone else want to follow that? Melissa? <laughs> no. I just <laughs> That's that's very romantic. I didn't think that he was that connected with his mom, but that's really sweet that Bob felt that way. Um I I just thought it was more of a physical thing that he was sort of, you know, falling in and out of consciousness because mm-hmm. of uh I'm not diabetic, so I don't really know how that sort of thing works, but I don't think it's a, like you're either conscious or you're not conscious. I think it's kind of an ongoing where your body's sort of slowly shutting down over a time period. And I think he, because he was so aware of what was happening to him in reality at the same time as he was aware of what was happening in his fantasy, he knew that he had to keep himself conscious. I think he was struggling to keep himself aware and awake so that he could get to where he right. could get that soda. <laughs> you know, Bron, um, unreachable soda. In uh, the last time that that I was in Canada, Bron and I were together. We actually ended up watching the Goosebumps movie, uh, the Jack Black R.L. Stein movie that came out. And uh, one of the things that I I like about the movie is uh, the main character's mother is also uh, poised to work at his school, like brand new school, moves to town, and so on and so forth. And the relationship between Joe and his mother at the beginning of the book, as brief as it is, kind of reminded me of the playfulness of like that relationship and that relationship dynamic that while maybe she's trying to overcompensate for the absence of the father, 
she's trying to keep their relationship in the positive. And I felt the same way that you did, that the prospect of proving himself to Queen Bree and showing her that there is light within the darkness, because she comes into the story and more or less tells him to accept the fate of the fantasy mm -hmm. world and to not be like a beacon of hope for the people to be the dying boy, but to be the dying boy after the darkness comes and consumes them, that it'll be so important for you to exist after the darkness swallows us, that you'll be the only thing that keeps us afloat in, you know, the pitch. And I just, I, I, I thought, I just thought it was awesome that that connection between those two characters is maybe what kind of snapped him out that like that bond is so strong within the fantasy world that it transfers over to the physical world and kind of jolts him back into coherence enough for him to make his way yeah. further down the stairs and to reach the um, circuit breaker box. Um, I've... Go ahead, Brown. Can... Oh, oh, or or Melissa. Sorry, Brown. I... Go ahead. I uh, I I'm, I actually was just I'm with Melissa. I love that you guys saw this connection with Queen Bree. I, I think that's amazing. And, and I, I love, I, I'm just sort of in awe, but I, I, my whole thing was that he was so task oriented. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is so determined to figure out what's happening, right? Like he's yeah. constantly throughout the story asking people for help and to somebody yeah. to Where give him Where am I? What's going on? Yeah. What sure. is happening to me? And yeah. Um, any other thoughts? I actually think this is a good time. I wanted to ask you guys about his relationship with his dad because in the beginning of the story, I got the impression that both he and his mom were a little bit um, bitter or angry about his dad passing. His mom makes a comment at the beginning that like none of this would be happening if it wasn't for him. Mm -hmm. You know, the, like the, the source of their problems now is because their father is gone right. because this man left. And like it, right at the beginning, I wasn't quite clear from the moment he gets out of the car in the beginning of the story. Like, are they divorcing or is his dad dead? I wasn't sure because it almost seemed like she had a little bit of a bitterness towards him. Yes. Um. So I I found it interesting throughout the story. It seemed like his his relationship with his dad was very was almost strained in that you know where i think i i feel like a lot of people go through this when a parent passes where you feel some anger for yes. them for leaving and for the the kind of mess that's left behind um and by the end when he finds that note he kind of finds his he finds his connection with his dad again and he kind of resolves that and it's like oh you know my dad really he really did do the best that he could always to like to make things work for us you know right um i think going with the idea that like they're just finding the deed in the frame. I think that the father's death is very fresh mm -hmm. at the start of the story, maybe just a couple of months or maybe even just a couple of weeks that they're still going through the stages of grief and they're maybe uh, even into the anger phase where it's his fault. You chose to go away and to be a part of this, Right. unit and to and to protect the world instead of just protecting us and now you've gone and got yourself dead and here we are and what are we it's supposed like, to thanks do without a lot. you right yeah. yeah thanks a lot dad you know i don't remember what he says at the cemetery but he says something when he's sitting in front of his dad's grave uh you suck or something i'll yeah. uh, i'll look it up right now yeah that was kind of a an example of his anger towards 
his dad. Yeah. I'm looking at the page. And it, it just yeah. it had that feeling with the mom's comment uh, of yep. like parents that yeah. are being divorced, you know, and she was kind of playing yep. sides with him. Yeah, he says, Hey dad, you suck. Right. Yep. Sitting in kind of like a we we have uh Arlington Cemetery where all of the gravestones are similar right. and it just stretches for miles. Like so. they like they made him go and visit his dad and he's he's very nonplussed right. about it. Like, oh, you know, I was actually in the like sitting down to reread the the story for the sake of the podcast. I was paying attention to everything in the story and in the art that even the positioning of the clouds and kind of the way that they were encroaching onto the situation as the storm is coming in that I was watching like the the book opens with Joe and his mom in the car and it's kind of like bleak but clear skies and as he is going on to what is quote unquote the school trip he decides to separate himself from the group and go to that section of the cemetery where his father is buried and kind of tells him what he thinks of the situation that they're now facing and that's in those in that time when he tells his father that he sucks is when the storm actually officially comes to town. Well, the storm comes to him at the cemetery as he's bullied at his own father's grave. And then follows him home. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also when his candy is taken from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yep. he's he's distracted from the one thing his mom repeatedly told him to do, which was eat that candy. That's, yeah, exactly. Let, let's skip ahead to the end again. I have sort of a question Go for, for it, everyone. Bob. As we as we come to the end of the story, how many of these people have been inside his house? Do you think the dog who's there mm-hmm. has been inside? Because the door is open. Right. Yeah. Are those kids in the house too? Do you think? I don't, I don't think the so. ones that are waiting around outside. I don't think so. I actually, I think I might have had. I didn't write it down, but I had a question about the kind of the bullies. I felt at... like their plan was to show up there until they saw the mom pulling into the driveway. Okay. Like yeah, they were right. on their way to the house. So right. they now, did, did tell him, like, we know where you live, you know. But the dog was inside as the, uh, not the hellhound. If, um, I don't know. The dog is in there, the giant dog mm-hmm. in this, right. in his fantasy world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who, who bites Jack. Right. Mangles his leg. Yes. A little oh, bit. That, I, I got pretty upset when I Yeah, that actually, that'll, this is good. That'll actually lead us into the next right, question. Because the dog is on the leash with those kids outside, but the door is open. Did that dog get into the house? Do you think that they let him into the house? I think so. On purpose. Yeah. Oh. I didn't pick that up. I just thought the dog was that up either. I thought the dog was just wandering around out in the rain and saw an open door. That's right. He is with them at the end and he's leashed. Yeah. Whoa. Jerk face jerks. Yeah. So okay, so this leads me to our next question. Did at, at one point in the story. Jack is uh, Jack and Joe are forced to a, a dog wanders in. In reality, uh, what kind of dog would you say Looks that like is? A Rottweiler. Yeah, Rottweiler. Uh, I would have said that too. So Rottweiler enters the house because Joe is uh, mistakenly left the door open, and Jack and the dog actually do battle, and Jack seemingly ends up getting chomped and supposedly dies about three quarters of the way, or maybe even halfway through the story, uh, he departs and Joe believes that Jack is dead. My question to the group is this. Uh, did you actually think that Jack was dead? And when you surp- were you surprised when he came back? No. You no. weren't surprised. No. He was playing with him, sort of tossing him into the air. Mm-hmm. 
in in the real life sections of it. So generally speaking, a, a rodent like that would would scurry away and hide somewhere to be safe. That chomp looked pretty fatal, though. Like it yeah. was all shadowy and everything like that. But those were some pretty clenched jaws around. But what there they're... was no blood. That's true. Ah, hey. <laughs> all right. Not just a pretty face over here. <laughs> I, kept, I kept putting. <laughs> I kept putting all of these like. I put all these ideas into this story. Like I kept waiting for the little girl to show up, the girl who was trying to help him at the graveyard. You know, I thought, well, she's going to show up any minute and like and help him and save him. And then I kept thinking, well, the mom's going to show up and do something. And the mom's going to, you know, and then the mom called and they didn't actually connect. She couldn't understand what was going on. Yeah, that was crazy. I I was just I was waiting for her to to understand him when he was saying like I you know, I'm sick. I'm I I need your help. I'm no, I I I need soda or something like he was trying to communicate. And you know what? It was refreshing. It was actually refreshing mm-hmm. to have somebody like a protagonist in a story like this actually try and communicate the fact that they need help mm-hmm. because yeah. that doesn't happen that frequently. You know, you just want them to say, okay, just ask for help. You need help. Just ask for help. Just reach out and ask for help. And they never do. No, it's but that it's that Joe spaghetti Western did. thing, right? It's the Yojimbo, the the man standing alone. No, come on. There are people here will help you. This was nice. I want to know where this mother was all night, though. She was at <laughs> the so- lawyers. She was at lawyers and lawyers and lawyers and accountants and... She seems so protective of this boy, and then she's like gone all night long, and you know, one phone call to check in on him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Now, is it? Here's the thing: there, how long a time do we think is missing here? Because time is so yeah, I don't compressed think it's that and long. expanded, right? She I mean, looks. He, him... he got back from school, right? And then, and then it's hard to tell too yeah. with the power out because it seems like it's darker. And yeah. a storm, right? Like I'm, right. I don't know. I've I've been here, you know, and it's it's late fall, and you have a big storm, and it's six o'clock at night, and it's pitch freaking blackout, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the thing. Is it from when his school trip is early morning to when he shows up? So is it one in the afternoon to four or five as she comes back from the? It could be four minutes or four hours. Right. Now that's confusing. Now I know Steve has this, so I and I was also. Was anyone else confused as to who the Iron Knight was me- meant to represent? I I actually, I mean, I assumed that the Iron Knight right off the bat was his dad. I did too. Okay. Um, I uh, and like I guess there was maybe at one point at the very very sort of introduction of him where I was like, okay, maybe this is just one of the toys, but as soon as there was the reference with the queen Bree and the whole kind of connection there, when I'm, you know, he was this big kind of deal who had been taken away by King death. And it was this whole, like, I you know, like the connectivity there made it seem like he, for me, he was representative of Joe's dad. Like that was, that was kind of a thing for me. And King death was because King death, of course, being this character that was both the immediate threat of, the, you know, hypoglycemic shock, and then also the sort of amorphous threat of him losing his dad, right? And so, 
the Iron Knight was the representation of that for me. Mm -hmm. Melissa, how about you? Uh, I would think I was a little bit unsure right in the beginning, but yeah, like Bronwyn said, it it cl was cleared up pretty quickly as soon as they introduced Queen Bree. I assume that was his dad. I still, because of because of what seemed like a very um, uh, back and forth, I don't know, not back and forth, but like um, multi-tiered relationship that Joe seemed to have with his dad, I wasn't completely clear if the Iron, um, what was his name? The Iron, Iron Knight. The Iron Knight. It was uh, if he was supposed to be a hero or if he was somebody like at the end when he showed up and he was he seemed to me like he was almost the villain of this. I wasn't quite clear about what happened with him at the end. Like mm. that. I mean, that was him sitting on the at the end, right? I yeah. thought so. Yeah, I think that it was more or less kind of the father reclaiming his rightful place in Joe's memory mm. as oh. being you know the the victor the king and restoring his knightlyhood if you will of place of, at the head of the family yeah well yeah. joe i mean the the iron knight to begin with uh, the book starts with joe drawing the iron knight and the iron knight is a character that he shared with his father and the father has then shared it with uh the people within his platoon and they all know you know whatever joe's father's name is they all know his son they give him the nickname of Joe the Barbarian because he creates all these fantasy characters and he's such a wild spirit that they all decide to name him the Barbarian because the Barbarian is, you know, crazed and unpredictable and imaginative and combat ready and all of these things. And uh, I was actually a little bit confused as to who the uh, Iron Knight represented. I felt like it almost represented them both. And kind of the 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 parallels and the lines that you can draw between how you're like your parents, and mm. by Joe restoring himself to a healthier state and saving the kingdom, and you know they kept the the they kept on saying at the end of this journey the promise will be that you'll hear your father's voice, voice. again, and he found the letter, and all of these things were then restored the house was is restored the the memory of joe's father taking care of the family is restored joe has become not just a boy he's now kind of you know leveled up or manned up a little bit in his life <laughs> and yeah. the relationships that he then has with his classmates probably the next day at school will then change because he'll he'll engage in conversation with them when his mother gets home and he's standing there, you know, in the rain, bleeding and victorious, and he's holding out the deed, you know, it just, it represents more so than just a character. It represents kind of like the end game, the victory of the story from so many fronts that I feel like the iron, the iron knight is kind of the symbol of like victory and hope and finality and memory and and just so many things maybe i'm reading a little bit too into it boom no that's, that's really great. interesting i like that yeah. hmm. that's why they pay me the big bucks <laughs> <laughs> wait who's paying you yeah seriously can i get yeah. that <laughs> nobody my my comic budget be my own <laughs> uh. so uh so bronwyn i have a question for you there's a bit of uh, Bronwyn and I have a term, or she has a term that that I have now adopted, 
that whenever a fictional character who is a little bit out of their depth tries to science within a story, yeah. uh, she has dubbed it schmience. <laughs> so uh, my question for you is this. As a microbiologist in real life, what did you think of the fantasy version? What was your first reaction to reading the science behind uh, why Joe can exist in both realms at the same time? And how much did you giggle? Uh, I giggled a lot. Like, um, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? I've sweared at least a few (laughs) times since we started. If I'm going to have to quantify, which I feel as the token science editor I should quantify, I'm going to have to go with I giggled a metric fuckton. Like, <laughs> I laughed my ass off. I, I love that. I really do. Like, you know, you know how I get when people try and science and they don't and they don't do it well. <laughs> it makes me really it twitchy. I can't handle it. Like it's it's really bad. You know, I watch a show where somebody from the CDC touches a piece of evidence without a pair of gloves, and I'm just like, uh huh, okay, no, 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 no. Or you get Facebook messages <laughs> from my mom. Oh, and your mom. I love your mom. Your mom is amazing. She is a phenomenal person, and I I love her. I love her. She's incredible, and I just. It's everything I can do to try and explain how concentration and chemical formula and um, application, all of these things are important and that being able to pronounce a word is not important to how safe it is. (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about right now. So (laughs) she's, she's so intelligent and so incredible and so important. And I will get through to her. I absolutely <laughs> I love it. I love it. Let me let me guess. If you can't pronounce it, don't eat it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I will come up with the chemical names list of all of the things that comprise a banana and damned if I will make her pronounce every one of them. Because <laughs> I have that list and it's a doozy. So how did you enjoy the uh, schmience of Joe the Barbarian? I really liked it. I was I was particularly fond of things like uh, um, the square root of the eye of Newt. Uh. <laughs> and, uh, oh, just the ellipses and the, uh, the sum totality. Um, <laughs> no, I just, I love the idea of trying to explain something, but not actually having any kind of specific you know framework for doing that so just going whole hog into ridiculousness that's the way to go like just go big or go home you know when you when you nickel and dime it when you when you try and get too specific and you don't have the background for it you lose people in the details, right? You know, um, you have that willing suspension of disbelief and I'm, I'm with you. I'm ready. I want to read it. I want to believe it. I want to love it. And then you tell me, you know, purple is blue and everything I've believed until now, I can't because you lied to me about that. I can't do it. I can't do it. You told me a microbiologist touched something without gloves on. I can't do it. You you told me, you know, that salt isn't soluble in water. I can't do it. You know, (laughs) 
I can't, I can't do it. But you tell me that the square root of the eye of Newt explains how this guy can be in his hallucination and the real world at the same time. And I can totally buy that because that's wing nutty. It's perfect. Yeah. It fits right into this fantasy. Well, we were before the, the show, we were speaking. Uh, you mentioned a lovely series of cartoons, XKCD. Oh, bit so, of brilliance. Right. So I, I at some level, we're better with the gentle beauty of Genesis than the nitwit prospect of creation science. Yes. Tell me the fairy tale. Don't try to couch it in stupid science. Yes. Honestly, because you break down when the story breaks down, when the, when the details break down. Yeah. The devil's in the details. If you don't try and give me details that I need to try and believe. <laughs> On the third day. Yeah, great. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> don't tell me how we get the continents to build up because we waved our hands at them and stuff happened. No, exactly. exactly. It's yeah. allegorical. I can fill that shit in myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know they, they, they leave something to the imagination my imagination good to go Damn. <laughs> anybody uh else got so many schmiancy thoughts should we move on i think we've schmianced the crap out of this one all right let's get to some of the fun questions that uh we've come up with so we're gonna go from the bottom to the top Right now, if you're looking at your little outline that I've so lovingly outlined, uh, here's a question. And I'm really, I got to tell you, I'm really excited to hear the answers to this Mm -hmm. because I think we're all coming from very different angles of this question. Here it is. If you were to build an army using the toys you had as a child, what characters, figures, Heroes and dolls would lead the charge. Uh, what was your favorite toys and playthings during your adolescence? Are we losing them? No. The thing. Oh, I, I, I'm good okay. to go on this one. Oh, no, just, no, okay. Uh... The video is doing a little weird dance right now, kind of going in and out, and I was afraid that I lost you, but we're all still here. Yep. Melissa. I'm no, dying I'm to hear what Melissa okay. has to say. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm just going to put this out here right now. I can't really answer this question. I'm sorry to disappoint everybody. I have like a really spotty, spotty, super spotty memory of my childhood toys. Um, I actually had to ask some of my family members to remind me a little bit of what I played with as a kid. So that might be the saddest part of this. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll have to I, work on this. Yeah, I have I have, uh, I have memory issues of uh, a lot of stuff as a child. Um, And I can only come up with one toy that I actually remembered liking as a All kid. Right, well, hit us with it. Um, I had a Fisher Price radio player, a uh, record player. Oh my god! Yes, oh, too, did you... I loved it. And when it? I and when I asked my family, that was the only one that they offered me as hell. Is this the closing like, play? Thing, was that the only thing I played with as a was kid? Was it the like like the the plastic records, like the yeah. colored green, blue, red, orange records? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, okay. and the, the yellow needle. Yep. And the red like uh, deck. Oh man! But it played real records too. I played a yeah, Spoons record on that. Yo. I own two records. I had the Lady and the Tramp soundtrack and the Best of Bread. <laughs> oh my God! I have I, I have Sesame Street and the Spoons. 
I have a story. I have a story that actually connects to this very toy. Are you ready for this? So I live in Sound Beach, New York. I live above a storefront. And uh, beneath me, actually, fun little fact, there used to be a comic book store. One of my very first comic book stores was downstairs in this very building. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool little side note. But anyway, um, so I was three years old, and we lived up the street where the pizza place is. That's right <laughs> up the hill from me. And there was a brown house with an apartment up top and an apartment in the bottom. As long as I was there, nobody was in the bottom, but we were up top. I decided, three years old, that one day I was going to go for a walk. And I was not going to tell my mom that I was going for this walk. I decided that I would open up the family car and sit in the passenger seat and listen to the Fisher Price record player radio that (laughs) Melissa was just talking about. My mom searched for me, from what she can say, for hours. She went to the barber shop. She went to the music store. She went to the pizza place. She went to the gas station. She looked for me for hours. And where did she find me? With a shit-eating grin on my face (laughs) with my platinum long blonde hair sitting in the passenger seat of the family car that she never thought to look in, listening to that damn record player and having a good old time. She has told me this. She has. She hasn't forgotten. She has told me this story so many times. She loves to hold it over me. As well, she should. I I can't even blame her for that. Yeah, Yeah, me either. You scared the shit out of me. Yeah, I hated you for six hours. Oh, I my. could only come up with two. I came up with the record player, and then I had a Snoopy like ride-on toy that had like a racing mask on. Oh, neat. I had one of those that I wrote. I actually have a scar on my forehead because I wrote him so much that I ran into a wall one time on him. Um, that, and then one of my sisters offered. She said, "Oh, you had Barbie dolls." I said, "I don't remember having Barbie dolls." And then my older sister said, no, those were my Barbie dolls. And apparently the only thing I liked to do with them was cut all of their hair off and dress them in Ken's clothes. So I had like, <laughs> I had apparently my, my toy army would be an army of um, transgendered Barbie dolls. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Would you believe that I have a Barbie doll story too? <laughs> no, well, you do not. I took the head off of my sister's Barbie doll when I was about four years old. And I put it in the toilet. Of course you did. And I flushed it down the toilet. She found out about it. And I shit you not, she pushed me down the basement steps. Oh, God. (laughs) Yep. All the way down and smashed into the, again, Fisher-Price, like, kitchen set. She actually pushed me down the basement steps. I remember it. I remember it like it was this morning. Does she still remember it? Yes. Good. Yes. Hold it over. Every every Christmas, I remind her of it. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. But it's a totally true story. I remember always really wanting action figures. I was really jealous of friends who had action figures, um, like aliens and monsters and stuff. But I came from a family with three girls, and my mom was definitely of the, like, you know, buy the girls' girl toys kind of thought. So I never had action figures. <laughs> Oh. See, my dad was really, really a feminist, and there were no gender-specific roles in our household, like none. Barbies were not allowed in the house. 
Um, I had a Cabbage Patch doll, but she wasn't a real Cabbage Patch doll because that was just too brand name for dad. And um, I, I was only allowed to have one with the caveat that she'd be brown skinned. <laughs> so I, I was the only girl in my like tiny village in, you know, the Ottawa Valley with a brown skinned cabbage patch doll. So she was awesome. <laughs> so she, as far as I'm concerned, she'd be like the general of my little toy army, which would be consist of almost entirely my little ponies with a cavalry <laughs> of model cars. Nice. I had a Model T Ford. It was awesome. I like it. Yeah. This, uh, this was too hard because I actually remember nearly every toy I ever had. Well, hit us with it. Including the, including the ones I, the first one I ever bought with my own money. I wish you that? could donate like a quarter of your memory to me, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyone remember things like Thunderbirds, the Jerry Anderson yep. puppet? Okay, well, his first cartoon puppet show, whatever you want to call it here in the States, I remember was called Supercar. It was piloted by Mike Mercury, and it could fly in the air. If you go on YouTube, you'll hear that it could oh, and go under the sea and whatever. Yeah. And I saved up my quarter allowance till I had five dollars that I could buy a supercar at a Toys oh Galore in Huntington Station. Wow. And yeah, my father was very proud I bought that with my own money. That's awesome. So the supercar would definitely be, you know, in my army of stuff. But when I was a kid, G.I. Joe was first popular, but it was the 12 the inch real American hero. The 12. No, forget the, the No, he was the size of a Barbie doll. He was. Oh, you're big. talking. He was like the, the big G.I. Joe okay. with the Kung Fu grip and all that jazz. The Kung Fu grip. But. Ideal Toys came up with something called Captain Action. Same size as G.I. Joe. And he had a like a, a, a navy hat and a, like CA on his chest and not like computer associates. It was Captain Action. <laughs> computer associates. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but instead of instead of like with a Barbie doll where you bought outfits for Captain Action, you bought superhero costumes and they licensed the real ones. So Captain Action could be Superman, Batman, the Green Hornet, Captain America. Oh, no way. Right. With the shield and the whole jazz. He's a Swiss army knife of action. <laughs> right, right. Now, my mom was a very handy, crafty person who sewed a lot of her own clothes because she was five foot one and, you know, weren't clothes for her. She made me superhero outfits. She crocheted, I... she crocheted an Iron Man armor for Captain Action. Whoa. The red and yellow one, the whole, the whole jazz. Yeah. I, I, I sadly, I had a couple of G.I. Joes. I painted one of them green because I wanted him to be the Hulk. <laughs> nice. So my army of toys, Supercar would be there, but I'd have Captain Action and some superhero outfits and some of these G.I. Joes. And I also had those trolls with the big hair. <laughs> so I, had, I have a whole bunch of those as like, you know, the cannon fodder. They'd go first and get blown up a lot. <laughs> I feel like they wouldn't even notice, though. No, they'd smile. I feel like they they're like radioactive. Yeah. They'd be just be like, ha, 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 that just makes my hair better. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be my army of toys. Amazing. <laughs> um, I was a very, very big action figure person. And uh, from all... So jealous. All <laughs> trademarks, all franchises, all eras... 
I mean, we're talking He-Man, Thundercats, G.I. Joe, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a big one for me. Um, I actually got into my first fight over a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Aww. action figure, but that's a story for another time. No. Oh. <laughs> so, what else? Uh, Star Wars figures. One of my favorite, favorite things that I used to play with was the Ewok Village set. That oh thing was the business. It had a like log cabiny stick figure friggin' elevator, a boulder that you dropped down a tree hollow mm. that kind of like went down and came out the bottom and rolled over people and all kinds of stuff. And one of my favorite things that I used to do, I, I actually I read a lot as as a kid. I loved to read growing up. And uh, I would arrange my books in such a way that I would make like apartments and compartments mm -hmm. for the action figures that they would have like their uh, headquarters and their barracks and their whatever, you know, like where they stayed and whatever. And I would combine all these different sets and you had like the Ecto mobile was a thing that everybody got around in. And I had borrowed my friend's turtle van at one point um mask was another huge thing that i used to play with and uh those were the ones where you like the vehicles would actually change oh, not but the they movie were piloted by human no okay <laughs> i think there were action figures for that one <laughs> and uh i had food fighters if anybody remembers food fighters it was kind of like it's exactly what it sounds like it's like a hamburger and a grilled cheese sandwich and a shake and they're like anthropomorphized and they're in the military i've never heard of that but it's a great pun yeah they shoot like ketchup guns and and uh, launch like jalapeno grenades and crap like that. <laughs> but just, see, during World War II, the original UFOs were called Foo Fighters. There were lights that followed the pilots' planes yep. around. Yeah, so that's where the band got the name, I believe. Yeah, I I think food fighters, food fighters would be awesome. Though. Like those jalapeno grenades, capsaicin. That's that's hardcore. Like you don't want to get that in your eyes. That stings like a bitch. No. One of the. <laughs> One of my favorite things about the Foo Fighters was actually the commercials in that their commercials were stop motion animated. They were nice. claymation and it was just, it was a really cool way. They did that a lot back when I was growing up where they had uh, stop motion animated commercials for action figures and such. And then they started moving over to like the Ninja Turtles 90s era where it was kids in really loud clothes with spiky hair, just kind of thumbs upping it into the camera and spitting a <laughs> catchphrase. So uh, I, I guess have, I have a toy question. Yes. Did anyone feel bad when they didn't play with toys for a while that they felt they were oh sad for being neglected? So bad. Okay, I'm not alone then. That's I good. don't even know if I can get involved in this conversation <laughs> because I still have I still have that complex about me. You can ask Bronwyn. There is a like a really really nice store that we visit for like furniture, tchotchkes, and and jewelry and and whatever called the Birdie's Nest. And every time that we go there, I take a uh, owl home i've gotten into like collecting mm -hmm. statues of owls because i'm getting old and that's now what i do aside from <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so every time that we go i pick up like nine of them and i guilt myself every time i put one back before i decide which one to take home that day and i feel like the world's biggest asshole leaving that store every time oh like we can't take home all the owls 
I get very just upset. One. Yes. I get very upset. I'm upset I, right now. What if you I go feel back like that and way about the My Little Ponies? It's yes. like, I and it's it's really funny because I, I was such a collector as a kid of the My Little Ponies, a huge collection of My Little Ponies, and and then you know we would donate our toys. Uh, my dad was a social worker, and so he had a bunch of kids in care um, that were on his his caseload that he was responsible for. Um, so when we were not playing with our toys for any length of time. Um, we would then have our, like our toys would be donated to the kids in care. So they would have them as well. So um, it, it was, we would just be like a big sharing program, you know? <laughs> um, so dad's other kids would have our toys for a while. <laughs> and, um, but my, as an adult now, I collect my little ponies again. <laughs> Good for you. I love them. I love them. I'm sorry. I do. And uh, my mom came to visit and she saw like I have a I have a whole display of them. Like I have so many My Little Ponies and like different kinds and styles. Like I have the tiny little I have like the pop figures, the Funko Pops. I have the little mystery box ones. I have these tiny little like squishable ones. I have My Little Ponies that are just the heads. And, <laughs> and <laughs> mom saw them and she's like, Jesus Christ, are you kidding me? You have collect My Little Ponies again? Do you know how many of those suckers we gave away? <laughs> Yo, Ouch. when when Bronwyn and I move in together <gasps> by like next year, and her mom's comes to visit, and she finds out just how many Funko Pop figures we have combined, she's going to shit. Yeah, there, yeah. it's going to be a fun moment to watch. Actually, we may have to videotape it. <laughs> She is going to come up to me. I'm I'm picturing that she's going to come up to me. She's going to like, grab the collar of my shirt and kind of twist it and pull me right up to her face and be like, I thought you and I understood each other. I thought that I could I count on you. Standing between yeah. us. I thought we saw eye to eye. And then she just like all of her fingers unclench at once and she just kind of shoves me back in one gesture and doesn't talk to me for the rest of whatever trip, however long she stays. <laughs> <laughs> my mom is a wonderful beautiful gentle human being but uh you don't want to be on her bad side <laughs> <laughs> she is a spitfire you have to be very yep. careful around her <laughs> so uh all right so we got another question for the group we commented on it earlier in the show but here's the thing how cool is joe's bedroom I mean, if you haven't read the book, this thing is awesome. He's got this vaulted ceiling attic bedroom where that's just it's really cool posters and action figures. He has like a top bunk bed that he chills out on and he's got his uh, desk for all of his drawing and his art supplies and everything. And it's just a really, really sweet setup. And Bob, I don't know if you noticed, but he actually has a rocketeer poster oh, in that. the background no. and he has i believe a star trek poster as well uh i am going to open up to that you guys can't see it because you're just listening to the podcast radio. but uh so the question is going to be this uh i want the group to think back and describe for our audience your favorite and in some cases only i have no idea uh bedroom that you had growing up like what were the rooms that you owned that stood out to you? What did they look like? What was your favorite aspect of their decoration? Uh, how did it reflect your personality? Uh, 
of your rebellious youth. <laughs> Who wants to go first? Rebellious youth? My, uh, <laughs> a little bit. Don't don't have one of those. No. Uh, no. No, not you weren't, me. You weren't a black hat, Bob? Not, not <laughs> me. Um, okay. I'll go first. Okay. Um, again, I don't remember a lot of my bedrooms very well. Uh, I know that when I was younger, most of my bedrooms were plastered with photos, uh, posters of either like Teen Beat era. Teen Beat! Corey Haim and things like that. That, um, oh my God, and then later it was just a bunch of yeah, a bunch of like hair bands like Skid Row and <laughs> I, just I had all saw these, them like, live. Come on, yeah, I just had all these hair band crushes. But I think my favorite bedroom, um, <laughs> talk about rebellious youth, was less about how it was decorated because it was probably my most sparsely decorated room, but more about uh, the way it was set up. And it was um, when I was I think around fifteen or sixteen. And it was one of those bedrooms on the upper floor of like a Cape Cod style home. And outside my bedroom window, there was the roof to the back porch. Oh, so, okay. yep. yeah, you guys know where I'm going with this. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so it's, not only could I sneak out on my roof in good weather um, and sit out there with my friends and look up at the stars and stuff like that, but I could also hide beer in the snow outside my bedroom window. <laughs> In the winter. Yeah. And I had a giant, I had like a 50 gallon tank with a big iguana in it at that point. And so that was, that was just my favorite bedroom because that was, and that probably was the room that represented the best, my rebellious youth, because I was hiding beer in my room all the time. (laughs) That has a lot in common with my favorite room. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had had a room like Joe's growing up, but I did not. Yeah, it's funny, actually. Joe's bedroom has a lot in common with the, our apartment here in London. Um, the vaulted ceilings, the exposed brick, the uh, skylight, skylights. all of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is a sort of familiar to what I live now, live in now. But uh, my favorite bedroom growing up was... Uh, it's funny, it's my sister's house now. <laughs> um my it was a horrible house when we first moved into it but it was one of those things that was like a a project house you know and uh dad was always very handy and uh, he and mom would work to kind of renovate and um my sister's considerably younger than me she's 11 years younger than me and so when she was born and i was 11 uh dad built me a bedroom in the basement it's a tiny little room smallest room in the house but he built the room just for me and so it was the first space that was just mine. And I really love wood. Like, I love the smell of it. I love the look of it. I love the feel of it. Um, Dad was very, very handy with wood. And um, it was something that I just always associate with him as well. And this room, when he first built it, was entirely wood paneled. Like, it felt like you were inside a bread box because, like, it was wood paneled on the ceiling, on all the walls, and the floor. <laughs> So, and it was so small that I could actually, like, the the bed was built into the walls in the back corner of the room, but I could put the flats of my feet on one wall and the, just stretch my hands over my head and touch my hands on the wall on the other side. Wow. And that was how wide the room was. Um, and that was okay, because it just, it always felt like this really super snug 
safe, secure place, even when I was, you know, the tumultuous teenager and, you know, all the angst and drama that that entails. <laughs> um, and so while it didn't have the uh, the roof access that your yours did, Melissa, it did have a window <laughs> with access to the snow to hide beer in. <laughs> And uh, full-on sneak-outable. <laughs> um, yeah, which I, I definitely did take advantage of for nothing more sort of nefarious than walking around in the middle of the night to look out at the stars because I grew up in the boondocks and seriously tiny village in the middle of nowhere. But anyway, <laughs> uh, when I needed to think and I needed space and I couldn't sleep, which, you know, I grew up as an insomniac, which a lot of the time. So uh, that was a fun thing to do. And uh, it was a it was a great bedroom for that. And my siblings all kind of adopted the same space for the same reasons. So it went through all of us. I have a story that combines, I think, both of yours in that the house I grew up in, my dad was also sort of handy that way. I had a regular bedroom on the first floor. It was a Cape Cod, uh, full attic and full basement. I was, I guess, about 11 and he finished off the attic, so I had a big it was a big ceiling. I didn't have a train going around it, which would have been pretty cool. <laughs> but I got yeah. to I got to sort of move upstairs, so I had a whole floor of a house to myself, which had a desk where I could write and draw comic books and keep all my stuff and toys and junk like that. No hiding beer, and no way outside the window unless I wanted to step off into empty space and fall down into the yard which he wouldn't have appreciated. But something that was in that room is actually still in my bedroom today. I have my favorite baseball player was Willie Mays of the San Francisco Giants. And I had a poster of him hanging in that room and it hangs behind the door in my bedroom today, 49 years later. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. I've never actually seen your bedroom. You shouldn't. It's awful. <laughs> It's a terrible mess covered in books and CDs and videos. and. I'm guessing that poster isn't the only thing that stuck around from back then. No, I'm, yeah, I'm one of those. Uh, <laughs> I have toys I had from when I was a little boy. I still have a James Bond Aston Martin from 1964 that I bought for $2.95 in Abraham and Strauss. Nice. Yeah, that's nice. awesome. And it has an ejector seat. And I still have the little guys it shoots out of the roof and... It still works. It could, use a, my... it could use a paint job. <laughs> but that, I still... that was what I named as my dream car for like five years of my teenage life. <laughs> I still want nice. one of those. Nice. Um, so for me, growing up, one of my favorite things to do, I was very much a collage kind of person where I took anything and everything that I enjoyed, whether it be video game posters, uh, promo stuff from when I worked at GameStop that I was able to, like, standees that I would just kind of take the backs off of them and take the flatter parts and stick them up mm -hmm. on the wall. Um, the Village Voice was a huge, huge part of my growing up that I would take any concert that I went to, find the clipping of it, and stick it up on the wall and just kind of this patchwork of all the music that I grew up with. And pretty much since like the early 90s, I started going to concerts full time. And uh, 
all of the ads for whether it be Nassau Coliseum or in the city were always on my on my walls. Uh, not to mention my own artwork, which just plastered even on an entire wall. I actually have a file folder in my one of my spare rooms in my apartment that has all of my old drawings, like pen and ink drawings, and mm-hmm. it's pretty cool. I used to draw like my characters, but with a lot of machinery. And there would be kind of a mousetrap effect to the things that were going on. I should show this to you sometime. Um, but the coolest room that I had by far, I think, uh, was I had kind of a basement apartment deal where, like, I had my own bathroom. I had my own tub and shower. Uh, I had my own entrance, which even though I didn't need to sneak out, like, I was always very, it was understood that I could go where I wanted and do what I wanted. My parents knew that I was responsible enough to never really get into much trouble. So they trusted me to come and go as I please. And um, that room particularly was just, I mean, I had a a little mini fridge in there. I had uh, two different stereos. I don't know why. Uh, Like a boss computer at the time to to do writing and uh, be creative and everything. And just band posters and band clippings for as far as the eye could see. There was very little wall on my walls. It was pretty much covered with comic book characters and and whatnot uh at all times and a lot of black light posters <laughs> i went through like a huge black light poster phase for sure um unicorns or bands no um like i had a really cool one that was uh ghost you rider know you loved the unicorns oh i love unicorns. unicorn rainbow that was one of our best posters in the old days in yeah. our record store but uh so that was pretty much uh some of my favorite aspects very uh very music oriented uh, for pretty much the majority of my life. But that is actually going to bring us to the end. Um, I don't think we really need to go through final thoughts of the book. I'm pretty sure we all liked it. Finaled it up. Yes. All right. (laughs) A unanimous thumbs up from everyone. Thumbs Thumbs up. All right. Uh, So I am now going to turn this over to Bronwyn for a moment. And Bronwyn's actually going to announce the book that she's chosen for our next book club, and we have a date for you. This is not going to be mystery. Could you, could you find a date for me? Huh? When we're coming back. <laughs> oh, Bob, we can definitely find a date for you. <laughs> we're going to start a service, but it does mean you're going to have to venture out onto social media. <gasps> you heard it here first, ladies. <laughs> um, and starting on October 21st. We will be venturing into the clean room, volume one. Ooh, so bring your gloves, <laughs> bring your um, suits that you don't mind getting blood on because there is a little bit of blood. There will be Just blood. Saying, there will be blood. Um, and uh, some thrills, some chills, and the occasional nightmare. Gail Simone did apologize in advance of me reading this for the nightmares. So I should probably do the same for all of you. Full on worth it. I promise. So good. Awesome. Amen. And uh clean room is another vertigo property. I guess we're going to do volume one. Yes. Volume one. All right. So there you go. Clean room, volume one, Gail Simone. And uh, do we know the artist? Bob? John Davis hunt. There you go. Perfect. Excellent. All right. Enjoy it. So, uh, okay, here's a deal. If you guys want to reach out to us on the Twitter, it is at 
top shelf book club. And uh, if you want to reach out to us via email, what is going top on? Shelf pod. It is top shelf pod. Why do I have top shelf book club? <laughs> God, the one thing in my notes that got screwed up. <laughs> it is top shelf pod, isn't it? Yep. Jesus. All right. So, you were close. I was close. I was damn close. Uh, I, at top shelf pod on Twitter, book club at talkingcomics.com uh, for the email if you guys want to send us long form on what you think of the show. Uh, or what you think of Clean Room. We're going to try to do a little bit more of the uh, old Twitter upkeep so that we can keep in contact with all of you and get your thoughts uh, over the month as opposed to the last week before we actually do this thing. And uh, it's only the second podcast, whatever. We're going to yeah. figure it out. Bugs to iron out. Yeah. <laughs> so, and... Uh, you ever tried to iron a bug? They don't stand still. No, they don't. No. They really don't. The nerve. The noise. <laughs> if you want to reach me, uh, I am at dead underscore anchorus on Twitter. Bronwyn, where can they find you? At shinybabyb on Twitter. And Melissa. You can find me at Lissa Punch on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find me at Mega Nerd Media. And Mr. Bob. Bob Ryer at talkingcomicbooks.com. All right. Well, we thank you very much for joining us for the second episode of the Top Shelf Book Club. Uh, I had a really good time. Everybody have a really good time? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Always. Always a good time with you. All right. Now, <laughs> now, the last time that I signed off, I got some flack for not having anything prepared. So I'm uh, going to try something this week and fireworks. see if it flies. Bob is my judge. <laughs> All right. So everybody, again, thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you when we move on to the next chapter of the Top Shelf <gasps> Comic Book Club podcast. Yeah. Nicely done. Oh, snazzy. I see what you did there. <laughs> and we're out. <laughs>